And now introducing your host for Buckets and Dan Sportsland. Sitting six feet away on my right, you may have seen veins popping out of his five head in a high school gymnasium, Dan Hannon. And his co-host, he runs a 40-yard dash somewhere between 7.5 and 8 seconds. Buckets O'Hare! And we are back here on Buckets and Dan Sportsland. Huge episode, a little bit different for us. This week, we are all about The Last Dance, the 10-episode, five-night series that has aired the past five Sundays. I've watched it through twice. Dan has watched it closely. And we've been looking forward to this episode. We're going to talk Jordan. We're going to talk the Bulls. We'll even... sprinkle in some wizards and fun fact we already recorded this earlier today some minor technical difficulties you know everything being erased randomly but we will not fail to to we will not fail we will release on our usual monday well we're gonna do our best and it we originally thought let's just do a couple segments but there's just so much to unravel um, and then we were able to reach out to a former Chicago Bull, Rusty LaRue, was nice enough to join us. We also have a roundtable coming up with a few NBA gurus in the Buffalo area to discuss our starting lineups of players to never win an NBA championship. So we have a lot to get to. Buckets, also I just want to congratulate you on a great intro coming into the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I got a shout-out here. You know who the shout-out's for? It's for Dan Hannon, the guru, the technical guru. (laughs) He will not be stopped. All right, let's (laughs) let's get after it here. Let's move on before I flip out. Uh, The last dance, Bill, it it came at a perfect time. A lot had to come together for it to happen. They had to rush the ending to get it out due to the pandemic, and they were afraid that they weren't going to get certain interviews at the very end. I I still – I don't – quite understand why this was the release date from the time they filmed in 98. I think it's unbelievable that nothing was leaked during the 20 years, but the footage was outstanding. I, it was a little confusing at times to follow in the timeline, but overall it was extremely well done. I I thought it was the best sports documentary I've ever seen. Would you say, would you say, first of all, would you say the same thing? And would you say a lot of that has to do to the circumstance? I don't think a ton has to do with the circumstances. I absolutely loved it. Uh, And to answer your question, Dan, why is it happening now? I think it's happening now because there's a lot that goes into a documentary like this. This has to be signed off by multiple big-time people. So the NBA had their hand in this. Netflix had their hand in this, ESPN, as well as Jumpman 23 Productions, Michael Jordan. He pretty much had a sign-off on everything, and you know he's not – going to you know just go off and do that and and it took a lot of time for something like this to come together um just hats off to that production team and i i don't think that us being kind of locked down and this only being our only distraction um was the reasoning we all loved it so much i think no matter the time of year this was released everyone would have absolutely loved it and my first thought that i want to get your opinion on is something that 
I was thinking about throughout the documentary, and we tried getting certain beat reporters from the Bulls and certain fans from that era to join us to get that perspective. But I would love to know, since we were so young and we couldn't follow, we we basically vaguely remember Jordan and the Wizards, which we'll get to in a little bit. But what was it like being a fan at that time? And I can't stop thinking if I'm a Bulls fan and my GM comes out and says – this is the last time that Phil Jack, or this, excuse me, this is the last year Phil Jackson will be coaching. That throughout this whole year on their championship run, the writing is on the wall that this is going to be it for him. It's it's just insane to think about what it would be like to follow a team, let alone play on it, throughout it with with the circumstance that it was. Absolutely, and you go back to you know that era. Although, just over twenty years ago, there is no social media, right, Dan? Let's think yep. about if if. Rodman is playing in this era. How crazy it would be. Think about what happened last night where he leaves, you know, in the middle of the NBA final series, goes on NWO or whatever wrestling yep. it was with Hulk Hogan and then comes back, misses practice. I mean, that would just dominate every single social media brand in the world. Then it's a totally different ball game. And I think that obviously obviously uh that helped them, you know, not playing in this era. For sure. I mean, having Hulk Hogan mock out the Bulls while Jordan is, or excuse me, while Rodman is next to him, surrounded by women during the wrestling event, saying, "Boy, I bet this is better than practice." And then coming back to practice, the coach sticking up for him, saying, "Listen, he's not here. I don't want you. I don't know what you want me to do." And then really facing no discipline and everything just going back to normal. That's how important he was to those teams. And we'll get into Rodman more later in our segment of who looked great, who didn't look good in the documentary and our hypothetical scenarios. But just in terms of just the different time periods, I mean, Rodman coming out of a game, all the fans screaming his name and support. This is before he went to Vegas and chugging his Miller Lite can, getting on his motorcycle with no helmets, getting a police escort out of the arena. That would be crucified today that would be ripped apart it's it's just such a different time period but I mean speaking of the time period even just the overall fact of a documentary and camera crew following a team for a whole season let alone a season is important and what ended up being a championship run but teams in the NFL hate training camp being filmed on hard knocks I mean it's just such a different era of exposure uh it's it was just the some of the stuff was just unbelievable to see and I agree, and it's not like anything like huge was uncovered. We all kind of knew what happened. We all knew the results, but just to go back, and I would recommend, even if you're not a basketball fan, if you have any sort of competitive drive, it's well worth watching all 10 episodes because you get to see someone who was wired completely differently than any other athlete, I think, of our generation. Yes, let's get into MJ. You're absolutely right. Wired differently. And you're right that nothing really groundbreaking was exposed. I feel like a lot of people didn't know that the flu game was actually a food poisoning game and the crazy story of five delivery guys um, delivering the pizza and Jordan getting sick. That's pretty groundbreaking. I thought that was pretty cool. But there's so much like nuances of this. You know, Jordan's trash talking, the story when he made up about LeBradford Smith. The every little thing Jordan used to gain an advantage in his own head, let alone, you know, using it to motivate teammates and whatever. But I just loved the ins and outs of it. We again, like I said earlier, we were not around for this. I mean, we were born, we were alive, but we weren't able to follow it closely. It it truly shows that sure arguments can be made that he's not the greatest player of all time 
And, you know, you can have the debate about different eras and what it was like that, that you know, the athletes Jordan was playing against versus the athletes LeBron was is, and Kobe played against. But I find it hard to believe that someone could logically give out an argument that Michael Jordan isn't the greatest competitor of all time. And I, I agree, Dan. I have I was slowly becoming more of a LeBron James fan and really thinking that he was starting to eclipse Jordan. Um, but again, my knowledge, like you said, was it, it I lacked factual information about Jordan. This documentary was great for people like me and for people who are similar to my age and our age uh, to see. And I think it's, to be honest, I have just completely been blown away by Jordan in watching this. And to me, Jordan is now back to being far ahead of LeBron for so many different reasons. Um, we're going to talk about his legacy, how he did so much to grow the NBA. The NBA absolutely exploded as he entered his prime. How he entered the league, I mean, his whole story is unbelievable, but how he enters the league and plays for years and years and years before getting to a championship is great as well. Yeah, and talk a little bit about, I mean, talk about from North Carolina, the UCLA stuff. Go ahead. <clears throat> so he, you know, his, they actually talked to the director about this, like what's one other thing about Jordan that you can actually make another documentary about. And he said, from Jordan's sophomore year in high school to pretty much his sophomore year of college is worth a documentary in itself. He doesn't make his senior, his varsity basketball team at Laney High as a sophomore. He is pretty much an unknown athlete before he goes on to a UNC summer basketball camp. A very young Roy Williams as an assistant and Dean Smith discover him and say, we can't let this guy get exposed anywhere. Meanwhile, he is writing letters to colleges like UCLA, hoping that they're going to respond to him and maybe give him a look, and they don't. And just how he explodes onto the scene is incredible in itself. Yeah, and I want to dive a little bit about the legacy like you mentioned earlier. I, I thought the directors and producers did a great job in that one episode tying in the I want to be like Mike to what it actually is being like Mike. And for a guy that the world put on a pedestal and, you know, there are certain things that they found like here's a, and that would be even worse in today's world. I mean, they'll, they'd find that's what happens with athletes today. They find old tweets. They find um, any little thing to nitpick. If you're not a perfect human being, the pressure that must've felt like outside of the basketball court. I mean, it's crazy to think that the best basketball player in the world probably felt a relief when he was on the court. I mean, Dennis Rodman saying that, he would play basketball for free. It's all the other crap you have to deal with. That's why he wants to get paid. I mean, these athletes that are just put on a microscope, but Jordan especially. I mean, like you said, he globalized the NBA. He was a worldwide superstar. He was a marketing icon. He changed the landscape of Nike, of Adidas in a negative way, um, of Converse. I mean, they were the official – imagine Converse being the official <laughs> shoe of the NBA. He set up teammates' futures. I mentioned earlier they got erased. Will Purdue – a guy that was a role player on that team has a career after basketball due to being on those Michael Jordan championship teams as a color guy. Not saying he couldn't have gotten that job without Jordan, but certainly made it a heck of a lot easier being that well known on those teams. Steve Kerr has gone on record saying he doesn't have he thinks he wouldn't have gotten that Warriors head coaching job so quickly if he's not on those Jordan teams. And every and it was awesome how they obviously the folks on Jordan, but they showed all different aspects um, of his teammates and went into in depth on some of them, which we'll get to, but the legacy he left 
off and on the court is something that I don't – I mean, maybe they'll make a documentary about LeBron someday, and, and it'll be the same thing, but I, I don't see it. I mean, it was a guy who <laughs> was pretty much under the limelight all the time. When his own father got murdered, people are making up conspiracy theories that it's potentially – there's a connection there to his own gambling history. It's and I loved the gambling stuff. I, I it just and again he made a not a joke about it. We we laugh about it, but he goes on a national interview looking shady as hell with sunglasses on and saying, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competition problem, even though he's signing um million dollar checks to sketchy people named Slim that's a golf <laughs> hustler and and again, if you're Michael Jordan, you have all this money what you do with it shouldn't be anybody else's business. And, you know, then there's the conspiracy theories that he didn't retire to play baseball, that that was actually his suspension, and they kept they swept it under the rug. Because the Bulls still, which is weird, the Bulls still paid Jordan when he left. I mean, you got Scottie Pippen pouring his heart out under that contract that sucked, and they're paying Michael Jordan to go play baseball, which I thought was very odd. But um, it, it, he, it, it was just captivating to watch year in, year out. And going back to his dad uh, – Having being an NBA player in general, being being anybody really, how do you go about your day to day life with your father, your best friend, someone super close to you missing for three weeks before they found that is just so horrible. Mm -hmm. And again, they didn't target him, but they targeted. I guess he was driving a Lexus or something. And again, an eight, a two, or an eighteen and nineteen year old dog barking, eighteen and nineteen year old end up killing him. Just there, I would. I hope, I mean, they did get justice. They end up going to jail, but I can't imagine what they must have been treated like in jail, <laughs> being as the two guys in North Carolina that killed <coughs> Michael Jordan's father. So that, and again, we'll get to it in the greatest moments, but um, winning on Father's Day, just an unbelievable recap to that. So, and when we talk about Wired differently, and they really went into it, some people I saw on Twitter like saying, like, okay, we get it, blah, 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 but. I'm sure there, for what they did produce, I'm sure there's a hundred other stories about Jordan just having grudges that motivated him. I mean, players, it was so funny. I loved that every time a player was talking trash to him, they showed a teammate or somebody else or even Jordan saying that was a mistake. Hmm. So anything that this guy could use as fuel, he did. You know, Nick Anderson saying 45 ain't 23, then he comes back the next game, wears 23 and dominates him. Horace Grant made a comment about that. B.J. Armstrong um, in the second half of the dynasty, playing for Charlotte and hitting the game, or excuse me, not the game winner, but really the game clincher and screaming. And Jordan basically said, well, that's enough of that. You know, you got Brian Russell for the Jazz, who was supposed to be the defender that shuts him down, talking smack when he's retired. And MJ just basically laughing at him, telling Carl Malone to shut his teammate up. And going into that, it shows what, it, what a, what a not only physical athlete, but mental athlete Michael Jordan is that he doesn't have the body of LeBron to just get to the hole whenever he wants, but he knew things about, he knew tendencies and certain players. I mean, he knew that Brian Russell played on his toes, so at any time if he gave a quick fake, he could beat him one way to the opposite. I mean, just knowing that you're that much better than everybody, but also still improving your craft every day, it, it really was remarkable to watch this documentary and what a different breed he is. He, he said it at the end of the... Um he said it last night, episode 9 and 10, that he was just addicted to the process of becoming better and that he was, physic he was more physically dominant in the early 90s, but he really, really took major steps from a cognitive standpoint. His mental approach to the game grew as he got older as well. And 
he made some of the most legendary NBA players of all time look pedestrian. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of coming up in our next segment here of who looked really good and who did this series make look not so good. And, I mean, just going back to how he motivated himself, I mean, you look at Charles Barkley and Karl Malone, all they, and again, this is what happens with LeBron too, in my opinion, but voters get so bored with the same person winning MVP over and over that they reach out to somebody else. Not that those two didn't deserve it, but I'm sure MJ could make a case in those two years as well. And he used that as motivation. And Charles Barkley coming off the court of that series saying, you know, this for the first time in my life, some I could admit to myself that someone's better than me at basketball. And, you know, the Tony Ku coach that all Jerry Krause wanted to do was build a more complete team. And Jordan took that as a slap in the face and him and Pippen go and dominate uh, Tony Kukoc while he plays for Croatia in the yeah. Olympics. Dan Marley, all, yeah. and you know, he says that, you know, Jerry used to drool over Dan Marley. So Jordan makes it a personal vendetta to go at Dan Marley when he's on the Suns in that championship series. And obviously the best one, LeBradford Smith, a no-name rookie, has a great game. And he didn't even, he, Jordan admitted he didn't even say anything. He made up a story in his own head to motivate himself to double that, Double that kid's output the next game before halftime. Excuse me. Match that output before halftime of a back-to-back. It's it's. We're going to talk about it later, I think. I don't know if we get to it. But what what kids now can learn from Michael Jordan about just the process of what it takes to be a winner? I mean, like you said, he doesn't make his sophomore team. He uses it. Excuse me. He doesn't make his varsity team as a sophomore. you got kids in high school around here in Western New York that leave schools if they don't make a varsity team. After, if yeah. they don't for certain years, it's so embarrassing. It's 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 watching him, um, the drive he has. It, uh, every athlete, you're right. It, you don't have to be a basketball fan. Every athlete should be able to watch that and take something from it. The transfer porter in college basketball and college football have never been bigger, yep. right? The instant gratification. The instant. And you did you touch on it? Was, no, I haven't. Yeah. In our interview with Rusty Larue, he talks about that as being kind of the main difference between today's athlete and the athlete from back then. Dan, can I just hit one more thing that I yeah, just of thought of now is one cool thing to think about with Jordan is if you kind of connect the first episodes to the last episodes and the timeline itself in the series kind of does this as well, but he was dominant in an era of the 1980s led by guys like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and then in the 1990s, beaten up on guys like Carl Malone and John Stockton. I mean, it's incredible to listen to those early episodes, listening to Magic and listening to Bird talk about MJ like that. And I, I loved the timeline. I love that they started so far back. I mean, from when he's drafted, how, you know, he's third overall, and we'll, we'll get to that about who looks bad, poor Sam Bowie. And we talk about the Pistons, and I love the Bad Boys documentary, but the passing of the torch from the Celtics to the Pistons yep. to yep. the Bulls and how he stopped that passing when it could have been the Knicks, the next up-and-coming team, and they just kept winning. And then he, his last championship in the Eastern Conference Finals, he beats Larry Bird, who he right. was teammates with on the, on the Dream Team and who he beat up early in his career. It's just an unbelievable full circle. It was, it was incredible. Rather than sulking on a loss uh, after they got beat up by the Pistons, what does he do? He's in the gym yep. weeks after, getting stronger, working on his weaknesses. It's, it really is like the ultimate guidance document for any young athlete. And like we talked about, he, he certainly changed the landscape of legacies in the 90s. I mean, he retires those two years, and Hakeem Olajuwon, with the Rockets, wins 
both those years that he's out and a guy that his whole career could be. If, let's say, Jordan stays, they win eight straight, he's on that list of players that have never won a championship. You guys, you have guys like Stockton, Malone, Barkley. Um, so, and speaking of that and tying that in, we did get together for a roundtable with some local NBA gurus for our starting five of NBA retired players to never win a ring. So we, we're not doing a Mount Rushmore this week. We want to tie in the last dance to a topic. So we have a basically a snake draft, five-team snake draft, and you have to draft by position. So you have, a, obviously, a point guard, shooting guard, small forward, center, and power forward. So we'll, we'll get to that right now. And then when we come back, we'll talk, to, we'll talk about who looked good, who didn't look good in the documentary, and some hypothetical situations. Here we go! This next segment is brought to you by MPR Restaurants. If you don't know what MPR Restaurants is, it stands for Michael P. Rizzo, a great local businessman. I got some specials to tell you about here, some takeout specials. My favorite, the famous chicken parm is going down at the Eggert Road location, the Rizzo's Schnitzel out on Transit in East Amherst and at Risotto. On Maple Road, only $8.99 for the chicken parm. That's my favorite one. But they got plenty of other specials. Check them out on Facebook. And if you didn't know, for all my Northtown friends in Tonawanda, Rizzo's, we all know, is an awesome Italian establishment. Kind of went to a German restaurant, Schnitzel. Schnitzel, it's coming back to Rizzo's. So once we reopen, there even might be a special guest behind the bar one or two nights a week. Now it's time for a very special segment on our last dance episode. We have our NBA roundtable with our local NBA gurus and Nick Phillips. Just kidding. We have uh, Nick Phillips. We have Jim Doyle, Zach Boley, and, of course, Buckets joining us. We each did a our own team in a snake draft of the best team we could come up with using only retired players that have never won an NBA championship. Trying to tie it in with the fact that Michael Jordan shut plenty of people out in the 90s. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Jim, thank you. Oh, damn glad to be here, Buckets and Dan. Zach? Pleasure to be here, guys. I appreciate it. Zach, it's a pleasure to have you back. You might, re- If you're a diehard Buckets and Dan fan, you might remember Zach with our segment from our college days. Also known as a minute with bowl. I <laughs> oh, love it. And we also have Nick Phillips. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. That was a solid chirp right off the bat, so I see how this segment's going to go, but thanks for having me back, Dan. Oh, Nick, it, you are welcome back anytime. It's a pleasure to have you on. So what we did was draw random order, and I ended up with the first pick. It ended up going me, Jim, Bill, Zach, Nick, and then obviously the snake draft. Nick ended up with two. So what we're going to go, what we're going to do first is go through each team and let each person describe their thought process uh, throughout their picking, and then we can chime in with our own thoughts, and then we'll chime in with our thoughts on everybody else's team. So uh, I, even though I had first pick, I know Bill, you wanted to go first. You had the third overall pick. Go ahead and describe your team. Really happy with how my team came out. Couple fun facts about it first. Uh, Nobody on my team was drafted later than the 11th overall pick in their respective NBA drafts. Uh, Everybody played at least 900 games. So those were some 
prerequisites for coming on to my team here. I started first round, third overall pick. I went Charles Barkley, also known as the Chuck Wagon, also known as the Prince of Pizza, also known as the Incredible Bulk, the Leaning Tower of Pizza, Bread Truck, you name it. But I went for, with him for all serious reasons. The guy, he was a 22-12 and 12 guy over a long period of time, over 1,000 games, and um, really one of the best players in NBA history. In the second round, I can't believe this guy was still sticking out. In my opinion, one of the best shooters ever. He was really featured well um, yet last night in the last dance, episodes 9 and 10. Averaged over 18 a game, almost 1,400 games. Really should have won a title. That Pacers team that almost beat Chicago uh, in the Eastern Conference Finals, and I believe 95, was really, really good. Um, was really happy to get Reggie Miller as my shooting guard there. Moving forward in the third round, I was lucky enough to get the teacher drafted to the Buffalo Braves with the sixth overall pick in, in 76. That's AD, Adrian Dantley. The guy was a scoring machine. When he played in Utah for four consecutive seasons, he averaged over 30 a game. Really, really dominant scorer. Not a lot of people are going to recognize him because he played a while back. Yeah, I think that was one of the, the steals and sleepers of the draft. That was my favorite pick on your team. Thank you very much. Um, and also, I drafted another Buffalo connection here from Bennett High School from St. Bonaventure. Bob Lanier, he's my center. He's a 20-10 and 10 guy over 950 games. Um, I didn't draft him just because he's from Buffalo, although that was part of the reason. Uh, really, really good center for a long period of time. Again, kind of a throwback, born in 1948. <laughs> and my last pick, born in 1943, which this isn't going to get me many votes, but Dave Bing in my opinion, top 50 guy of all time, seven-time All-Star, three-time All-NBA. He was a scoring champion, MVP in 75-76. Uh, for me, Dave Bing was a great point guard to get in the last round of the draft. Um, so overall, really happy with my team. Um, got guys who won NBA, won NBA MVP trophies, um, a lot of great scores. So overall, I was happy with what I was able to do, although I do not expect to win any type of voting championship because my guys, a lot of them are throwbacks. Yeah. Oh, uh, and one more fun fact. <laughs> three of my guys, my last three picks, all played for the Pistons at one time. That That is a fun fact. Yeah, I don't expect you to get many votes here either. Um, not that your team isn't very well established. I think you definitely your bookends um, on your team of Lanier and Bing, definitely old school picks. I've never heard of Dave Bing, so I hope he's not a top 50 player of all time because that would make me feel less of a NBA fan. I, I loved your Dantley pick. I said that, and obviously you can't go wrong with Barkley and Miller. And one other point, I you know Jay Billis likes to talk about wingspan. I'll tell you something about wingspan. I don't think there's a team that's as long as Bucket's squad. Okay, thank you. Any, uh, any of you guys have thoughts on Bucket's team? Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, uh, I guess I should thank it, Bill. I, I thought Dantley was a good steal, too, but you left Grant Hill on the board, and I thought that was uh, a better name for a draft like this, a little more of a household name. One of the most uh, talked-about players in terms of a big what-if, if he never had gotten uh, an injury-riddled career. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think he got a solid spot in terms of basketball historians, uh, but we'll see how the fans you know, turn out in terms of uh, percentage, like I said, for voting there. 
and I believe you were down between Dave Bing and Mark Jackson. I think, again, you're not going for votes, but Jackson's also one of the top assist guys in NBA history. I think that would have been a better pick, in my opinion. Could have got you some more votes as well. Another guy featured on the last dance, but Zach or Nick, any thoughts? Yeah, you know, I actually, I like Billy's team. I like that he stuck to his guns and picked a handful of old school players. And of course, with some local connections too, it doesn't surprise me that Buckets would pick players like that. But I love the Danley pick, like everyone else has said. I mean, that guy, super underrated in NBA uh, history. Um, and I actually do know Nate, uh, Dave Bing as well. I've played against him on 2K before in my Legends uh, <laughs> League. So <laughs> My great-great-grandfather uh, no, like played overall. against him. I, I agree. It's not getting, it's probably not going to get many votes, um, you know, from basketball or really just typical fans uh, in this area, but I, I do like your team, Billy. Nick wrapping up any thoughts. Yeah. Bill about the fans voting for you. Uh, I'm in the group where I, you, I do a little research after you gave your draft, but you sold me with your enthusiasm. So I'm glad you really like your team, man. That's, that makes me feel a little better. <laughs> you know, for a guy who lives in the YouTube generation, that means a lot to me. Thank you very much. <laughs> No All right, problem, so, Bill. so wrapping up, Team O'Hare, Team Buckets goes Dave Bing, Reggie Miller, Adrian Dantley, Charles ba Barkley, and Bob Lanier. Uh, I'll go next. I had the first overall pick. Um, so I had the, you know, the whole board in front of me. I, I was looking at Barkley. I was looking at Carl Malone. Uh, but I wanted a flashier pick. I wanted a guy in the backcourt. I went with AI, Allen Iverson. 26.7 points per game, an NBA Hall of Famer, 11-time All-Star, three-time All-NBA First Team, um, just a dynamic player. He was electric. He also has the sweetest step over another human on the court that I've ever seen. Um, so I, I'm very happy with that pick. I, yep. Well, this to me was a – I was shocked to hear that Iverson went first. But to me, if the more I thought about it, if you're looking to win a voting championship, Iverson – was a phenomenal pick because he's super recognizable. That crossover is iconic, and I think that's going to help you a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 14 seasons, he won an – excuse me, he was an MVP once, won the rookie – so he started off his career right away, won the rookie of the year, four-time scoring champ, so I was happy with that pick. Um, on the way back, I really wanted Chris Webber, but he was taken right before me, and we'll get to that later, but – so I went, I filled up my backcourt with Tracy McGrady and then drafted my first big man into Kembe Mutombo. So I figured most of my guys are going to be flashy. And when you think about flash, you don't think of defense. So I needed at least one defensive guy. So I picked uh, Mutombo, defensive player of the year, four times. He's 20th all time in rebounds. So he's my stopper down there. He's got the finger wag, just full of swag, awesome voice in those Geico commercials. Um, and... With McGrady, another guy that I just – he was fun to watch. He's a two-time scoring champ. Another guy that injuries kind of derailed the second half of his career, but when he was hot, he was hot, so I'm very happy with my first three picks. And then when I was able to wrap up my team at the very end, I filled it out with Larry Johnson, more of a locker room and team spirit guy, one of the best clips ever when he gets the end one three versus the Pacers. Um, just a heart and soul worker on the boards. I know, Jim, you'd appreciate that. And I really wanted Dantley, but Alex English fell in my lap. Another just prolific scorer. Um, was the leading scorer for his team in 55% of his career games, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, had some great years with the Nuggets. 
And that is my team. So I went Iverson, McGrady, Alex English, Larry Johnson, Dikembe Mutombo. Would anyone like to chime in with? Yes, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, uh, you know, coming from uh, a big Allen Iverson fan myself, he's probably one of my favorite players growing up. Uh, I was a little surprised he went number one, but I can't knock you for it because the guy was absolutely electric and never uh, had the most help on one of his teams. But um, I think overall you rounded out your team pretty well there, Dan. Thank you. Jim? Yeah, it's just funny. I don't know if this is going to be made available to the uh, listeners out here, but if you look at our draft board uh, towards the end there, it goes small forward, small forward, small forward, right down to the nitty-gritty of the last uh, picks of the fourth round. So I think that would be a great indication for our viewers and listeners that um, I think most of us try to go based on depth. Yeah. So we're yeah, kind of, sure. we're, we're willing to sacrifice, um, you know, a couple guys at the top of the board in order to wait around for somebody that might fall in your lap later. Like you said, it also seemed like it, cause we went off positions from basketballreference.com and it seemed like small forward was a large overlap between shooting guards and power forward. So there was a very large crop of players in that area. I would agree with that. I definitely wanted to wait on small forward. That's why I was, I was kind of bummed. Um, obviously, you know, there's nothing I could do because I had the first pick, so I have to wait so long for my next two. But I really wanted Weber. I wanted a, a good, you know, a dominant big man, a dominant guard. But, you know, you stole him. So I was happy with my two defensive, more defensive forwards there. So, Zach? Yeah, no, listen, um, I was very surprised with the first overall pick. I think like everybody else, I do love Allen Iverson. Um, I think Carl Malone uh, was the pick there. Actually, I, I think I had Iverson fourth on my big board, uh, but I can't really fault you there. I, I do like AI. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the rest of your team, I, I like Larry Johnson a lot too. I think he's a really a really uh, well-known name, someone that people will recognize and stuff. Great college player, obviously. Glue guy. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I like the team as well. Very sexy backcourt. I'm a huge T-Mac fan. He's actually the reason I fell in love with basketball originally before uh, before LeBron back in the NBA Live days on the PC. I like that. I like that a lot. So, yeah, go ahead, Jim. I, I just want to pose this question to you. If available, since, like we said, it went three small forwards in a row, if I had not taken Grant Hill, which we'll get to, uh, would you have taken him instead of English? It, it was funny. I you, you, you like to build up, you know, a bank of picks on your big board before it gets to you. So when Zach was up, I pick, or excuse me, yeah, when Zach was up, I had three small forwards written down, and all three of them went in a row. So would I have taken English over Grant Hill? Probably not, because I'm looking for the popular vote here. So I know Grant Hill would probably be a more popular player to more casual NBA fans. So I probably would have went Grant Hill. But I still got my score. I really wanted Dantley, even though he's probably he's he's more of like a sexy old name, though. You know what I mean? Like he, there's a guy that, especially with the Braves connection, getting drafted by them. So, uh, Dan, I liked your team a lot. Two two specific picks. I love English, the Blade, and he's a scoring champion. He's an MVP, and he's an eight-time All Star. And I also love Matumbo. Do you know why, Dan? There's something to do with us. Why do we love Matumbo? Why do we love? Oh, didn't he get an honorary? He's an honorary yeah. graduate of SUNY Cortland. I did know And that. he's a big, big defensive time guru. New, no, new, no, new, no, new, no, new. No. <laughs> yep, very good. Good. Okay, so moving on. Let's go to let's go to Jim. Your team, you had the second overall pick. Your team ends up being from point guard on down, Steve Nash, Pete Maravich, Grant Hill, Carl Malone, Chris Weber. So you obviously went Malone number two. Go ahead and describe your team. 
Yeah, you know, um, I'm sure all of us did this when we found out where we were picking or even before that. We made a big board of uh, depth charts basically by position with the overlap uh, based on basketball reference. So I was thrilled when Iverson went in front of me. Uh, I think I had Iverson fourth on my depth chart as well in terms of all, all the players. I would have put Stockton just a notch above him. Uh, yeah, so it was easy for me to go Malone. And he was actually, I think, one or two of the only players I had on my board that was locked into only one position. He was strictly power forward, I believe. Uh, so I, I pegged him right in there. And I love big men. I was six foot from middle school on, and I just lived in the paint my whole basketball career. So I love bigs. I go forward center anytime we're talking about the greatest ever. Uh, and then, you know, that leads me right into my second pick, snagging Chris Weber, who uh, was in the top four in terms of my big men depth, uh, Red Pine, Barkley, and Ewing. So I got two out of the top four bigs I wanted. Then it was really easy for me just to kind of see, you know, where I had more depth available. Point is pretty narrow and thin at the top, as you'll see as we go. We've already thrown out a few names. Uh, people might not be as familiar with. So I think back-to-back MVP winner like Steve Nash, great guy to throw on the squad, fits perfectly. I had uh, shooting guard and small forward. I had a laundry list of guys that I would have been happy to, to settle for, including uh, Pistol Pete. Um, I think Penny went a little bit after that as well. So kind of just plug and play with, uh, with the depth chart and see who we got there. I was also thrilled when Buckets took Danley right ahead of me. I wanted Grant Hill real bad. Great name for a thing like this. A lot of people know him. We already uh, briefly discussed his uh, injury-riddled career. But still, I think that's a great guy to have for something like this. And I love Pistol Pete. He would have dominated in today's era. Great ball handler, excellent passer. Got him pull up in the gym range. If you got some time, we already went down a rabbit hole of guys to never win a ring. Go down a YouTube rabbit hole. Look up Pistol Pete. Some phenomenal highlights. He's got some great little uh, training videos he does with Red Auerbach as well. Really cool stuff to watch. Uh, I think I have one of the better squads um, in terms of players that have never won a ring, as well as if you want to have these guys run one through five against any other team, I think they would wipe the floor with another squad. Yeah. If we look even a little more in depth of like, if this team actually did play together, you have an awesome pick and roll combination with Nash and Malone. You have a prolific scorer at your shooting guard, a well-rounded player in Grand Hill, and obviously Chris Weber's great down low. So you're right. You do. A, I, it's very clear. You have one of the stronger teams and it's nice the way your big board fell to you. Yeah, I think I really benefited just from um, where I was picking, and it, it helped. You made it an easy decision for me. You took point guard, who I did have as um, point guard in general as probably the third position I would go for, and I ended up doing so anyways. But it really opened up the big men selection to me, and I I was thrilled. I got to jump on any Hall of Fame forward or center I can get my hands on. Yeah, Zach. Um, yeah, no, listen, I love, I love Jim's team. I think, I think he's got the best team, honestly. Um, he gets, in my opinion, the best player in the entire draft at two. Um, his second pick, Chris Weber, I think is one of the most underrated players in NBA, NBA history, honestly. Um, so I love that pick. I hate the, I hate the fact that we flex him to a center. Obviously that that's in the rules, but I think he played power for most of his career. Nash. I actually had Nash six on my big board. He goes 12. So great value there. Uh, uh, Pistol Pete, I had 12th on my big board. He goes 22, so another great value pick. And I think Grant Hill's a great player and a, and a very well-known name in uh, the NBA book. So, I, I mean, overall, fantastic team. I love it. Nick? Yeah, I agree with Zach on the uh, flex of Chris Weber to center. I've always thought of him as a power forward, but I see if you, uh, based on the rules, if you're able to put a guy like that there next to Carmelo, how could you not? 
Um, also, I know we briefly discussed this, but Steve Nash leaving the Mavs, you say no. I think maybe him and Dirk could have got a ring if he would have stayed, but um, I, overall, great team, and like uh, Dan said as well, I think they play, would play very well together, so well done, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, um, Nash and Dirk back in the Dallas days would have been interesting, but I don't know if they ever would have really realized who they could have been individually, just because Dirk was a little bit more of a ball stopper at that point big ISO guy, uh, but I think Nash would have gotten along with anybody as his mm-hmm. career progressed. You could have molded him into any kind of player you wanted him to be. I agree. Obviously went on to have a great career with Stoudemire and Sean Marion and those guys, Boris Dia and out in Phoenix. So let's move on to Zach's team, and it's awesome because when we first recorded this, um, you stated that when we're all said and done, you weren't real happy with your team. Have you changed that thought at all, Zach? No, I still feel the exact same way. No, still feel so. You end up with Stockton at your point, the Iceman George Gervin at the shooting guard, Elgin Baylor at small forward, Nate Thurmond power forward, and Yao Ming at center. So go ahead and walk through walk us through your team. So I had the fourth overall selection in this draft. Um, I felt like I had a chance of getting someone like either Iverson or potentially Barkley if he slid to me. Obviously, you took AI one, so that was out of the question. I was hoping maybe Buckets would let um, Charles Barkley slip. Uh, he made a great selection at three and took him. So I wasn't a- absolutely thrilled with getting Stockton. It's not – I don't know if he obviously was the sexiest player, um, but obviously in terms of NBA history, he's the all-time leading assist guy. I mean, he played 19 seasons and averaged over 10 assists per game, which I think is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he probably would have had a ring if it weren't for the uh, the Bulls and their teams in the 90s. He had you know two good chances at it. Um, so I was pretty, I guess, happy with that. Not ecstatic, but pretty happy with the, with the pick of Stockton. Um, I actually had quick. someone, my second pick, Elgin Baylor, um, higher on my big board than Stockton. I, I had a good feeling that he was going to slide back to me in the second round with where I was thinking uh, Nick was going to go. Um, Elgin Baylor, I think, is one. I think he might be in the top three most underrated players in the NBA, NBA history. Obviously, he played in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, so a lot of people don't really know much about him. He actually had a season where he averaged, I think, over 38 points per game and 13 rebounds. Um, so statistically, uh, just a, a great player, just not as well known. But, of course, he played the Bill Russell Celtics in all those years uh, when he was playing, so he missed out on, on, a, on a championship. And fun story, uh, fun story about Elgin Baylor. Again, 0-8 in finals appearance or finals appearances that's a grind and the year that you know his career kind of got cut short due to injuries so the year he was forced to retire due to knee injuries the day after he announced his retirement the lakers go on a 33 game win streak and end up winning the championship that year so poor guy never got to experience a ring they get one right after him but he certainly set the foundation for those teams but that's obviously a great pick continue sorry um, so then in the third round, I got George Gervin, uh, better known as Iceberg Slim. Um, I actually really, really was, was very happy with this pick. I, I love George Gervin. I'm sure Jim does too, as a big Spurs fan. Um, a guy that I think was more of like a Kevin Durant before Kevin Durant back in the seventies and eighties started his career in the ABA only played 10 NBA seasons, but was a nine time all-star and a four time scoring champ. Guy was an absolute bucket, scored 25 points per game in his career. So I was very happy to get Gervin as my shooting guard. Um, I just love the type of player he was. So, uh, And then my fourth pick, um, I can't say I'm really too happy about it. I, I wasn't overly happy when I was looking for centers at this point. Um, I actually had one or two guys rated ahead of this guy, Yao Ming. Um, but I thought, you know, Yao Ming, he didn't have a, a long career, but a very, he had a very productive one, averaged 19 points over nine boards a game. 
eight seasons in the NBA, eight-time All-Star. Um, so obviously he had a lot of people back in China voting for him, but in terms of really pushing the NBA in terms of a global brand, he was a huge player for that. And he's a very obviously recognizable name. So I thought it was a, a good choice at center for me. And then rounding it out, the second last pick in the entire draft, I took Nate Thurman, um, also known as the chairman of boards played back in the sixties and seventies. Uh, in my opinion, probably the second best defensive player in this draft next to Matumbo averaged 15 boards in his, uh, per game in his entire career. 10th all-time in rebounds, five-time all-defense, which is the most on this list. Um, so, you know, he's actually more of a center. I was able to flex him to power forward. Uh, but he's a very intimidating guy down there, and I was happy to round up my team with Nate Thurman. So, all in all, I thought it was it was an okay team. I can't say I was over the top, you know, too happy about it, but I'll take it. If you are listening to this podcast and have never heard of Nate Thurman, do yourself a favor and go Google him because I think he has negative percent body fat and also has the worst hairline in NBA history. But he is freakishly athletic-looking and horrifying. But I have a question for you, Zach. Looking back at the draft as a whole, um, that you're not super happy with your center and forward depth, Do you, if you could go back, would you take Ewing over Stockton and then try to um, maybe get some guards later? Or was Stockton too far ahead of Ewing on your big board that – the value was too good not to take him. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Stockton, um, in terms of just NBA history, a lot of people know him, like I said, all-time leader in assists. So I, I was pretty solid on that. But maybe one regret I might have is if I would have potentially taken Elgin Baylor instead at four, like I had him higher on my list. Maybe that, that causes uh, Nick to take Stockton and leave Patrick Ewing there for me to take at seven. Who knows to say? Um, but I, I don't really regret anything like that. I like, I like a lot of my picks. I think a lot of people won't know you know, much about them, but in terms of NBA history, I think they're all good, good players. Yeah, I'd agree. Anyone else want to hop in? Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. If you look at Zach's just one through three with Stockton, Gervin, Baylor, mm -hmm. I think that's a incredible trio of scorers and just general basketball players. Uh, I had Stockton as my number one point on the board. Gervin is a historic scorer. Guys still talk about him. See him in those Gatorade commercials too, looking pretty badass. Uh, Elgin Baylor, when I think of him, I just think of those old school uh, baby blue Lakers uniforms. Those are great. But yeah, the clearing uh, afterthoughts are at the forward and center spot. But that's just the way the draft board shakes out. Yeah. So let's move on to Nick Phillips' team. He had the the back to back in the first round and obviously to start the second round. So he ended up getting two awesome players and like two very flashy players. He goes. Patrick Ewing and Dominique Wilkins going center, small forward. He rounds out his team later in the draft with Sean Kemp, Penny Hardaway, and Tim Hardaway. Nick, uh, what are your thoughts on your team? Were you happy with it? Yeah, I was happy with it. I know I got a lot of uh, slack from you guys because it was a very flashy team. But like I said, uh, I'm a big YouTube guy, so uh, I know Jim disagrees with my comment, but I'm not going to YouTube to watch people run the triangle offense for 30 minutes. I'm going to watch people dunk and cross people over. So, uh, that's why I, I went with, uh, you know, Tim Hardaway as my last choice, but I'll get to that in a second. Patrick Ewing to start it off. I mean, he was the anchor of all those good Knicks teams. Uh, he kind of was a shell of himself in his last year in Orlando and Seattle before that. But if it weren't for those two years, he would have averaged a double-double. Um, I mean, not much you can say negatively about Patrick Ewing uh, with that pick. And then Dominique Wilkins uh, is just an absolute monster. A guy can throw it down from anywhere. So, um, I felt like those two picks in the first wraparound were, were huge for me to, to knock those down. And um, at least from a voting perspective, if we're, 
if we're looking at that, I think those are two huge names that people will recognize right off the uh, top of my list. Um, coming back in the swing round, uh, Sean Kemp and Penny Hardaway, um, two guys as well, just high-flying electric playmakers. Uh, Sean Kemp for uh, being a power forward. He actually played a little center too. Uh, being able to soar through the air like that guy was a beast on the defensive end as well. Um, I thought those were two good picks uh, in my pocket. Uh, and then lastly, the Tim Hardaway right there. The guy's got a sick crossover. I know his stats don't pop out of you, but uh, when I'm watching those uh, crossover hoop mixtapes, you know Tim Hardaway is popping up on there a time or two. And uh, I tried to emulate that in my high school career, but that didn't work out. But, hey, that's why I'm not on this list. So uh, I, I really like the way that my list panned out, and uh, and I'm open to the criticism from uh, the historians over there. Yeah, Jim, I know you weren't happy. Well, you weren't thrilled with his backcourt. You want to explain? Yeah, I think it's just a little goofy seeing Hardaway, Hardaway twice, uh, especially Tim Hardaway. That was pretty pedestrian for his career. He's got some good highlights. He's got a great handle. Um, but we'd already talked, touched base a little bit, guys like uh, Mark Jackson or even a Kevin Johnson. I don't know if a lot of people would know that name, but I thought Kevin Johnson was a pretty big snub on a list like this. But, you know, your three through five are incredible. Wilkins, Kemp, Ewing, you can't go wrong there. Penny, I think, is a phenomenal name for this. He was just in the last dance, and he's got a killer nickname. Go ahead and try to pronounce his first name correctly. Um uh, yeah, I just think Tim Hardaway is kind of a not the greatest choice. But hey, you watch YouTube for the flash, and I'll watch it for the uh, for, you know the success and the titles. Yeah, I mean to the Tim Hardaway point, he still averaged around 18 points and eight assists a game over his career, so it's not terrible numbers. And for a guy that was kind of a, a an evolution changing player with his crossover, I mean there weren't too many people doing those crossovers before him. He, he kind of changed the game a little bit with that. Uh, I mean, he'll tell you himself, he has no problem doing it, that people watched his tape later on and mimicked his style and they eventually became better. But he said, you know, people were shooting threes and free throws and doing that. He was doing 300 crossovers a day to really perfect that. So I think that goes a long way in my book as well. Yeah, I think that the the Penny Hardaway pick is interesting just due to the fact that definitely a guy that his career was cut short due to injuries. It would have been awesome to see what he could have done. But for those years, he was with the Magic, with Shaq and um, Horace Grant. He certainly put up the numbers. The Tim Hardaway pick, I, I don't like Tim Hardaway, but it's it's a selfish reason. Like I mentioned last time, I, I hated those Heat teams growing up. It's when I started really enjoying basketball, watching Larry Johnson bang down low with Alonzo Mourning and um, watching Charlie Ward and uh, Alan Houston, Latrell Sprewell go against – Dan Marley and Tim Hardaway, all those noon games on NBC. So uh, I I like your team. I, I do like your team. I think it'll get a lot of votes, especially with your uh, three through five. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, Penny is actually one of the more interesting guys for a draft like this with the rules we're using. Uh, he is listed as a point and shooting guard as well as a small forward. So, Nick, did you have any consideration at putting him in a different position other than your shooting guard? Because I thought that was a pretty deep spot, and that could have saved you um, from putting a guy like Tim Hardaway as your point guard. Well, I guess, thinking about it more, he's not so terrible in terms of the overall uh, history of the game for a list like this. But I think Penny having him there and then kind of settling for whatever shooting guard fell into your lap would be um, kind of a way to go, too. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. I will say, I mean, Tim Hardaway was the last pick of the draft for us, so um, I was kind of uh, just 
looking at some names, seeing what's out there and what popped out of me the most. That's why I landed on him, just because he was most familiar with me. Um, looking back on it, maybe I could have went Penny, but I'd have to go through the list of shooting guards that were left off the board. I, I can't wait for your uh, your snub list that you're going to list out. So maybe once you start listing some of those out, I'll see a shooting guard out there that I wish I would have switched Penny to point guard. But um, I didn't know who was going to fall to me with those last two rounds. I had a long wait to, for the comeback, so um, I don't mind putting Penny at the two. Zach, final thoughts before we get to the snubs of the draft? Yeah, real quick. I think uh, Nick team will get a lot of votes. Uh, I think it's flashy. Like everyone else said, a lot of recognizable names. I really didn't like the uh, the value he got at Penny and Kemp on the wraparound. I had them 28 and 30 on my big board, and he got them a lot earlier. Um, I think both are just big names with very sh- um, small um, Sample windows in terms of being elite, um, especially Kemp. I think Kemp's very overrated in terms of NBA history and stuff. But um, overall, very flashy, recognizable team. Just not, not a huge uh, fan of it schematically. Zach and Jim, I believe you guys did the most research into this. No offense, Nick, I'm in the same boat as you. But So who are some of your uh, the notable snubs? Yeah, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, before I uh, get into that, I, two snubs are not considering because they're not officially retired in my book, and I think we kind of came to consensus. Jamal Crawford and Vince Carter, two guys you could certainly uh, consider on this name. Jamal Crawford, one of the ultimate six men in NBA history. Vince, we all know his reputation speaks for himself. Uh, I have 12 team depth charts of leftovers for snubs, but I'll just give you one guy that um, I think a lot of people forgot. And if you watch some big three basketball in the summer, you know, this guy's a legend already. Joe Jesus. ISO Joe. That's a great name. Um, We already talked about Mark Jackson, Kevin Johnson, Mark Price is another name that came up in the last dance. Brandon Roy. He was big in our generation. Gilbert Arenas, Darren Williams. Uh, there, there's a lot of fun names to go through. Do you know why they call him Joe Jesus? I don't. Because he saves the day. Because he doesn't always show up when you want him there, but when you need him, he delivers. That was what someone said about him once. Um, yeah, good. I agree with that. It would have been interesting to see if someone took Jamal Crawford for a starting five of best players never win a ring because obviously he's he made a career being a six man so that would be an interesting dynamic uh zach any jim real quick zach i guess i'll just go to you since you're up what who are some shooting guards you had left that possibly nick could have snagged if he did decide to swing penny over to point guard zach or jim zach why don't you start i'll, I'll let jim you, you okay. can take this one. Oh yeah i got an easy one um but you know this is kind of goes back to who's better tim hardaway or chris mullen so I thought he was a good name that was left off. Uh, Rolando Blackman, he's not very well known, but he's got a killer resume. How terrible did Mullen look um, in that Pacers uniform, completely shaved? Oh, he's horrible. Very uncomfortable. Very you know, actually, a good story about that. The Pacers tried to intimidate them by everyone shaving their heads. They looked very goofy. That's just did like they, the worst. Did I hear that world. correctly that Rick Smith was 7'4"? That's not right, right? No, that's correct. That is gigantic only made that one all-star team too at 96 that uh yeah they, Jordan Kobe ran. yeah they yeah they highlighted him too that's interesting uh zach any snubs before we wrap it up um just a couple snubs i had left on my big board um bernard king i thought uh, about him too yeah yeah um artist gilmore i, I saw a lot of uh, high on a lot of lists uh jim mentioned chris mullen uh walt bellamy's an old old time center but had some huge numbers uh, and Lenny Wilkins, I think he's pretty well known as a head coach, but he's a pretty darn good uh, uh, point guard back in the day as well. And we'll we'll end this with a fun story I 
I actually did know, but just um, was reminded about today. But Carl Malone, Jim's second overall pick in this draft, actually had a child when he was uh, 20 years old at Louisiana Tech with a 13-year-old girl. And that son, that baby, turned out to be Demetrius Bell, the former Bills left tackle. Is that a crazy no story? Is that yeah. a crazy story? That's pretty crazy. Wow, it's wild. <laughs> All right, well, that's, that'll uh, do it for our round. That's wild on a lot of levels there. For, that'll do it for our roundtable of the best players to never win an NBA championship. I want to thank Zach Boley, Nick Phillips, and Jim Doyle for coming on. We really appreciate your insight, and hopefully when the NBA starts back up, we can have you come on and talk about some more fun things. Alrighty then. We again want to thank Nick Phillips, Zach Boley, and Jim Doyle for joining us discussing the best players to never win an NBA championship. Please make sure you go vote, be it your favorite or what team you think is best. On our Twitter poll, you can go right to Buckets and Dan, or you can go to at 716 Mount Rushmore. Next week, we will be back with our normal Mount Rushmore. We'll be discussing the best places in Buffalo to get chicken wings. You can throw us some replies and your suggestions on Twitter as well. And if you ever have some feedback for us, it's greatly appreciated. And there's a special hashtag on Twitter that we like to use. If you'd like to ask any questions, and we'll address it for sure on our next show, Dan. What's that hashtag? Hashtag Q&A for B and D. And you make sure that you use the number four instead of the word four. So definitely go ahead and tweet at us. Let's continue um, with our last dance talk Let's go through some who looked good, who didn't look good. I thought, and we'll let's oh, get in depth yeah. here. They made, they didn't make, but they did a nice profile on Steve Kerr, a lot of which I had no idea about, never knew about his father getting assassinated over, what was it, Libya? I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, I forgot. Uh, I don't know. Um, somewhere that's not in America, which is horrible. And I actually saw on uh, Twitter today that the – while he was in college, fans were chanting about his father, which is insane. But they did a nice job profiling him and what a what a great role player he ended up being. Obviously an undersized shooter. Something that you definitely a niche player. And what I loved about it is he went under John Paxson's wing um, as the like the the next shooting role player for this dynasty. He came in during Paxson's last year and it's something that Players hate doing nowadays. They don't. They want to be the Michael Jordan. They want to be the Scottie Pippen. They don't want to be the guy getting f- only five shots a game in a limited role. But he ended up being crucial to that championship run in '97 and obviously in '98 as well. Um, he was like one of the more consistent characters through the entire documentary, and I really, really enjoyed the scene where he talked about getting in a fight with MJ in practice, and. MJ was like the master at really testing his teammates just to see if they were for real um, and if they were willing to fight really hard. And Kerr was that guy, undersized, not super, super talented, but worked super hard, and and he definitely gained the respect of Jordan. And, of course, I think they tried to use Kerr as much as possible just to appeal to the more casual modern-day fan. Yeah, for sure. I thought that Luke Longley, quickly, Luke Longley looked great during this documentary. I don't know if he even got interviewed. but the Where clip, was he? But the clips they showed, he was great down low as a big man. He made some nice – he had some big buckets for us, Utah, especially to force overtime. Uh, but these role play, it's cool seeing these role players that I've really never heard about. Dennis Rodman, we touched on earlier. I thought the Rodman clip of him explaining how he learned – 
the rotation of the ball and what that would do when it hits certain parts of the rim. If that's true, that is unbelievable. And I, I would tend to believe it's true because Jordan, who I don't think throws compliments out very lightly, has gone on record saying he uh, that Dennis Rodman is one of the smartest teammates he's ever played with. And I thought you made a great point earlier, um, except the problem is I don't remember if you said it in that first segment or <laughs> earlier when our recording got erased, about him being focused and, um, you know, his the antics off the court certainly didn't match the antics as a professional basketball player. I think that some of Rodman, sure, he's, you know, obviously has had his fair share of wild nights, but he was actually calmer and more of a quieter guy than he is portrayed to be. And that's actually talked about in the interview that we do with Rusty LaRue. Um, an excellent teammate. And then, then another guy uh, who looks pretty good in this documentary is Doug Collins. Yeah, and you, I feel like you want to go into this, but Doug Collins – we talk. We're going to get to somebody that obviously was be made to um, be the villain of this, Jerry Krause. But what a move he had switching from Doug Collins to Phil Jackson, because Collins was the first coach to bring Jordan to the playoffs and succeed with a a, um, a series win, and it was a huge turning point in the franchise. And instead of just dismissing that and going right to Phil Jackson, who obviously becomes one of the best. <coughs> excuse me, one of the best coaches in NBA history, they made sure to put an emphasis on Collins' tenure as a bull. Well, I mean, he took over a really bad team. They won huge improvements in his two seasons there. They won like 42 games, and then they won 50 games. So, like you said, it was, I mean, I just can't get over how they were able to fire him when Jordan was averaging over 37 a game in those two years, solidifying himself as one of the best players of his time. Um and just one other thing to mention about Jordan that is just incredible is how coachable the guy was. The guy never badmouthed any of his coaches. Not his high school coach who caught him. You know, um, he was addicted to the process of getting better, whether it's Phil Jackson, Doug Collins, um, his college coach that he really praises a lot, Dean Smith. The guy was as good as he was. He was extremely coachable through it all. And before we touch on the negatives – Let's just really think about what Jerry Krause built in Chicago. Drafting the franchise player, and again, this is a hard, This is not an easy thing to do, or at least certain general managers in sports make it far more difficult. Surrounding Jordan with the perfect pieces to build a dynasty. Going out and getting Scottie Pippen from a fairly no-name college. Um, going out and getting Rodman. From a no-name college. <laughs> Yeah, or, really. well, no, well, well, no, he wasn't drafted. He was traded for, but still a no-name yeah. college. Um, yeah, and, and this is after Rodman had a, a very bumpy year in San Antonio, but he knew that they needed a big man to. Um, and it's funny because they needed a big man to compete with Horace Grant, who really dominated them that year that Jordan came back, because um, Grant left to go play for Orlando with Shaq and Penny Hardaway. And Rodman came in, and then they sweep Orlando the next year. I thought it was a really good moment in episode 10 last night because Kraus was definitely villainized early in the series, but then – and they, it's really highlighted how Pippen gets, like, gets uh, gets rough with uh, Kraus, you know, yeah. coming at him on the bus and everything like that. But late last night in episode 10, Pippen is quoted as saying, you know, I – I wouldn't be near the player I was if I didn't play with the best player of all time in Jordan, if I wasn't coached by the best coach of all, the t of all time in Phil Jackson, 
and if I wasn't under the best general manager of all time in Jerry Krause. And for, in, for Krause, I mean, signing Pippen to that huge contract at that time, although it was a bad deal for Pippen, that is the reason they won six championships. If they don't get Pippen at that value, they never win that amount of championships. And when you talk about how and why Krause dismantled the team after that last dance season, Jackson, they, they don't re-sign Phil Jackson. He takes a year off before going to join the Lakers. Jordan retires, as he said he would if Phil Jackson wasn't the coach. They finally trade Pippen to Houston. They release Dennis Rodman. They don't re-sign him. And then they <coughs> trade Steve Kerr. So they certainly did blow it up. And when you look at it, there's a reason the owner had the GMs back at the time. And like I, it will never happen again. That It's a player-driven sports universe, let alone the NBA, the most the most player-driven league. I don't think I can name 10 NBA coaches, but I could – I mean, that's a player-driven league. Even if he had the foresight to say that this this was coming to an end, the owner at his back, and the owner has gone – Jerry Reinsdorf has said he didn't want his Bulls team ending up like those late 80s, early 90s Celtics when you know, they kept on – they tried to hold on for one more year and one more year, and they end up just being broken and battered. He wanted a rebuild – a quick rebuild and then right back to which is obviously very hard it didn't happen um but if imagine if Krause would have been able to do that imagine that that Tim Floyd comes in is actually a great coach and they have a couple rough years but they get high draft picks and then boom um they go right back I mean he could go down as one of the greatest GMs he probably is the great one of the greatest GMs ever but he could solidify that spot and all he wanted was some recognition and throughout the documentary Jordan just roast them and it's it's just funny if when you take egos aside it would have been funny if the owner stepped in once and said everybody shut up and just do their job what what might have been uh let's get to scotty pippen dan how do you think he was portrayed in this series i've i mean everyone knew going in that scotty pippen was second fiddle to jordan they made sure to emphasize that throughout this documentary i mean the migraine story and it's just hilarious that Michael Jordan just doesn't believe in medicine or um, migraines in general, that he thought he was just being a baby about it, which is just outlandish if you've ever had a migraine. Not coming out for the Tony Kuko shot, you mentioned in the intro that I'm quite the angry coach in the sideline. Dan, I'm just curious. If you were the coach in that situation where Pippen refuses to come out at the end of the game because you don't draw up the final look for him, what would you do? I don't even know if I can answer that just in case any – Buddy, that's a parent of a player of mine or one of my <laughs> players even listens. That is just unfathomable to me. And how about what your boy Bill Willing? What's his name? Wennington. Wennington crying in the locker room after to mm-hmm. bring the group back in. But that was Cartwright. Oh, was it Cartwright? Yeah, that was Cartwright. Uh-huh. Cartwright. Um, Who was a assistant coach on that last dance team? Yes, that is true. And just that is just crazy to me. And and we're gonna talk about what ifs. But if that shot doesn't go in, maybe people give. Scotty Pippen validation, but he just looks horrible that it went in. And I was listening to a podcast. They made a great point. A huge part of that play is the inbound pass over whatever person they're putting on the ball. That's obviously usually put <laughs> yeah, a lanky exactly. player trying to distract. I mean, that is just a huge, a huge moment. They give, they do give Pippen some validation at the end when you know he was able to play through those back issues, and they kind of, you know, one one of the guys is quoted as saying like, "There's very few NBA players who." Uh, would have came back to play in that game. Correct. And 
Quickly, someone that looks bad throughout this documentary. Jerry Sloan, a Hall of Fame coach, not just attacking Scottie Pippen play after play yeah. in that game six, knowing that the guy can barely walk on the court. Using, I mean, he was a decoy. He couldn't move on the court. So that, that's unbelievable. And him not knowing that Jordan was sick, apparently. He, he didn't come off as very intelligent. As, yeah, as did George Carl for not, I guess, putting Gary Payton yep. on Jordan. In their NBA Finals match, and another guy, I mean, talk about Gary Payton. In my opinion, he's like one of my favorite players of all time. Um, undoubtedly one of the best defensive players of all time. And Jordan just laughs at him in this series. So not a great look for Payton. And quickly going back to Pippen, when he says he doesn't regret or he, do- he wouldn't change a thing about that situation, do you think that's stubbornness or do you think that's saying, listen, we won doesn't matter, whatever. I think that's pure stubbornness. Yeah, no kidding. I agree. <laughs> and again, missing those free throws before the Reggie Miller shot, um, didn't. I mean, <laughs> certainly didn't come off too great there. And you mentioned they, Gary Payton. They, and and yeah, and like you said, sorry to interrupt it's you, okay. but uh, like I said, how there's a lot of hands in the pot and how this documentary gets made, but they're in no way, shape, or form gonna really put Jordan under too much of a negative light. But I'm sure. That they're, where there's smoke, there's fire with Jordan's gambling. I mean, I'm sure there's some pretty crazy stories that went down with that. That is all. Yes. <laughs> I, could, I would love a documentary on that. Um, I, could, I have a few stories I could be throwing in that documentary. <laughs> but, um, let's move on to what ifs. And the real quick, I want to touch on, we mentioned earlier legacies. Think about Carl Malone and just little plays that Jordan made. You know, stealing the ball from Kyra Malone before he hits that game-winning shot. If he just clears through the lane, mm-hmm. Malone makes a move on Rodman, scores there. Maybe they win game six, and then it's, you know, anything could happen in a game seven. Just the, the there's like just five, like maybe five different plays that you can pick in Jordan's career that the, the history of basketball is altered if he doesn't make those plays. That is just so cool to be able to say as a player. Absolutely. So <clears throat> let's think about what if here, Dan. So we'll start with what if. Sam Bowie, who actually had a pretty decent career if you look at his numbers. I mean, he was a 10-7 and seven guy over like eight seasons. Yeah, <laughs> but, definitely right up there with Jordan. But, but uh, you know, like that's a great career if you're an early second-round guy. But he was picked second overall over Jordan, big center out of Kentucky, seven-footer. But Jordan goes third to Chicago. What if, Dan, Jordan goes second to, what is it, Portland? Portland, how did the Trailblazers not learn from history? Ah, oh, and then they draft Odin over, over Durant. Durant. Jeepers. Just, that is tough. That is tough. Um, boy, another great what if. Way off topic. What if Brandon Roy doesn't have those knee injuries? Yeah. Anyway. And then they get Durant. I know. I know. I know. So the Rose Garden. Jo- Jordan gets drafted third overall. And again, how much I'm sure that he used that as motivation throughout his career as well. Um, I mean, Ralph Sam- Sampson was pretty the consensus number one overall that year. No, Hakeem. Elijah won. You sure? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. We'll cut that. Um, <laughs> no, we're not cutting that one. So, that yeah, that's certainly something to think about. I mean, do the Trailblazers build a dynasty? Do do the Bulls are they still are the Bulls still competitive? Do they still draft Pippen? I mean, you look at what ifs. Jerry Krause and Jordan Butterheads and everything. Jordan didn't want Horace Grant. So what if they don't draft Horace Grant? Do they do they win those first three? Um, just just so many different what ifs. If yeah, I want you to get into this one, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I mean, I think if Krause doesn't fire yeah. Doug Collins, I don't. The triangle offense is potentially never implemented in Chicago. 
I have a hard time seeing them winning more than I'd say maximum four championships. Phil Jackson, to me, I mean, yes, the guy has had incredible talent throughout his entire NBA career as a head coach. Lakers, Bulls, you name it. But the fact that he is able to keep like everyone's ego in check and he's able to keep everyone present, he had the respect of every single player on his on that Bulls team. You never heard Jordan or Pippen once say anything negative about the guy. And he kept everyone present. Like all of the type of methods that he had, they worked, right? So if if Phil Jackson never becomes the coach of the Bulls, which Jerry Krause is the guy who pretty much discovered Phil Jackson. If he's never brought into Chicago as an assistant, I have a hard time believing they win more than four championships just because it's very difficult um, or it's easier to stop one person when he always has the ball, as Phil Jackson says. Uh, Ralph Sampson was drafted number one overall the year before that. So okay, yeah. No, you're good. I'll see you're off. Um, yeah, I, I think it's also crazy to think about what is Phil Jackson's coaching trajectory if they don't make that move? Does he go and be a legendary coach somewhere else? Does he not have the pieces at his next job to be successful and the triangle offense goes to die? So I, I definitely think that's an interesting topic. How about this? What if Pippen leads them to a championship when Jordan retires to go play baseball? Does that change Jordan's career at all? What does it do for Scottie Pippen's legacy? Well, earth-breaking news here. I think if, if that happens, then... Pippen stock up, Jordan stock down. Thanks, but <laughs> do, do you think Jordan comes back? Yeah, I, I do, I do. You think Jordan comes back after the Bulls win without him? And Guy's a competitor. All right. You'd well, be what, happy for him. He was in the crowd. He was in the crowd at, like, almost all their games. Which, that would annoy me if I'm a Bulls player. While he is playing baseball, right? Double A? Yeah, probably, yeah. Now, what about this? What if baseball doesn't go on strike in... 96 and Jordan I mean that's a driving force to Jordan coming back because he had nothing else to do really does Jordan I want your hot the buckets O'Hare hot take if Jordan sticks with baseball the rest of his life how many (laughs) at bats does he get in the major leagues he gets over 100 at bats he gets to the major leagues and part of it is due to the fact that he's Michael Jordan and you know he's going to sell tickets the they they couldn't put Jordan in single A baseball because they knew they didn't have the the capacity of fans and media relations there. So yeah, he's getting there. Okay, this is like he's like a rich man's Tim Tebow. He's definitely getting uh, to the majors. He's definitely getting over 100 ABs. The guy hit 200 in double A. He had to be taught how to throw a baseball, retaught how to throw a baseball. So yeah, for sure. Uh, I, yeah, I would agree with that. I think he might get even more than 100 at bats. Yeah, I just said more, yeah. I hate that Tim Tebow is still in the Mets organization. Do, excuse me, does the dynasty stay intact if Jerry Krause does not say before the year even starts that this will be Phil Jackson's final year? How about this? Do the Bulls, does this change the Bulls mentality at all that year? I think it has to, right? I mean, that, that set the precedent, and I don't. I think things could be way different if that was never spoken about. It's just you know what's crazy to me is after that last dance watching last night and watching their celebratory, you know, thing in Chicago where all the players it's really funny watching Kerr talk about how Yeah, that was awesome. That was hilarious. But then the next year Phil actually saying 
Jerry had other ideas, but he was he decided he'd stick this out one more year. I mean, it was just so well known. Um, so yes, I think things could be totally different. And let's I, f- I forgot to mention something earlier. Just what I one of the biggest takeaways I had as a basketball coach, and you could write a book about things I need to improve on, but I would say I have good relationship with my players, but I don't have good enough that they just. I mean, those are grown adults that Phil Jackson's coaching. They're they're basically captivated with anything he says. I mean, we try to do stuff with character building and relating it to life and doing different things for life lessons. How about him bringing in the Chicago Bulls team after the year, having them write their thoughts on a piece of paper and burning it in a coffee can? Not one person, you know, scoffed at it. Steve Kerr said it was the most emotional thing he's ever been through as a player. Michael Jordan writes a poem. I mean, the respect that that team had for each other. And you could talk about the respect they had that. They didn't practice back-to-back days. He gave them afternoons off to golf. I mean, it was such a veteran-laden, know-the-process team. I can't imagine what that would be like in today's – I guess you could look at those Spurs teams, really, yep. those dynasties of the same way, but how much respect Jackson got. Um, and let's move on. So let's just quickly wrap it up. Uh, the best moments of the documentary. I know there's so uh, – we could, we could spend another two hours talking about this documentary, but some of the best moments real quick. Reggie Miller, the Reggie Miller story. Uh, first of all, I didn't even know that they like they hated each other that much on the court. I mean, they would go at it. They went at it like physically the one time. It was cool watching MJ um, watch the clip of it on his iPad saying, don't hold him back, don't hold him back. And that's another thing I want to get to. My, one of my favorite parts of the documentary are the iPad clips, and Jordan's reactions are so funny. They make for great memes, great gifts. Um, but Reggie Miller talking trash in those amazing – uh, old school Pacers jerseys as a rookie, and Jordan coming back, lighting him up, and saying, "Don't talk trash to Black Jesus." Yeah, and his trash. T- I mean, mentioning himself—that's twice in the documentary. He mentioned himself as a god, and if that's how he thought himself, good, because he basically walked on water on the basketball court. Yep. Um, I'd say one of my favorite moments is it kind of got in touch, at least a little bit, with Jordan's emotional side. Um, he talks a lot, uh, at least, about the crew that he associated himself around. He had his own entourage, and that's spoken a lot about in the documentary, and there's a lot of video of it, too, which is cool. And um, He surrounded himself with a lot of the security. He had his own security team who worked security at United or at the arena, and the the guy Gus, who was spoken about um, at length yesterday, kind of became a second father figure to him, after he lost his dad, and I thought that was just really touching how he, you know, was, he was called, he called him a lot, he spent a ton of time with him, Um, and it was also kind of, Jordan was just so smart and ahead of his time that he knew the type of people to surround himself with, like, he was always, he said it in the documentary, I want to surround myself, I wanted to surround myself with older, smart people. And you look at the, yeah, and you look at how many athletes, in today's world, surround themselves with the wrong people and end up getting burned. That's a great point. Um, yeah, and it, it showed Jordan's human side, which it, which was great because, you know, we saw the fierce competitor, but we, we saw him as just a great guy. You'll hear a story that Rusty LaRue tells about when he needed tickets. You see the tickets he gave to Scott Burrell. You see him, you know, people keep bringing teammates into the back and he has no problem talking to him, signing autographs, always interacting as he walks by. It was very rare that he just walked by someone he didn't sign something. Uh, he even gave his armband to that French player one time when he just ripped him <laughs> off. Um, they so said the best thing about Jordan is he was just, like, and it's something that a lot of people 
including myself, just struggle with is he was present. And mm-hmm. it's incredibly hard for a guy of his stature to be as present as he was in everyday life. I thought the pickup games between the Space Jam set and that Dream Team practice, that footage was incredible. I think it's just so funny to think about, you know, it, were you on the invite list for those right. Jordan pickup games, Space Jam? Like, how did Sean Bradley get those invites? And Joan Howard. <laughs> uh, so Howard that was, was good. Oh, that was interesting. And uh, something that most people have already talked about, and it's just as a coach, as a competitor, as an athlete, as just someone that loves to win and hates to lose and hates losing more than he enjoys winning, him talking about competition and tearing up, talking about how he treated teammates, but he only did it to push them to succeed. Every player should listen to that. Kids cannot take constructive criticism. I often struggle to take constructive criticism, but if you are, if you trust the people around you to, that they know that, you know, they're trying to make you better. It's, it was just so awesome to hear that he mentioning that he would never do something He'd never tell a teammate to do something that he wouldn't do himself. Um, and I loved the one part when he came back for that second run, and he's talking about Steve Kerr, and I forget who the other guys were, and he's saying to someone of those first practices, he brought him aside and said, who the hell do you guys think you are acting like this? You weren't on those first few teams. Like, you have to earn your stripes, and those guys did end up earning their stripes. So I thought that was great. Last, last thing before we wrap up. It was such a different game, and again, this goes back to the who's the best basketball player of all time, just the different athletes in the different eras. It's so hard to compare. Um, even just watching that game of, like, pig that the Bulls were playing where they're, those guys are barely reaching the rim from, you know, the timeout area, and Steph Curry is throwing them up from, like, three rows up in the in the bleachers and just draining nothing but net. So I, I do think it's a more skilled game now, but that is that is no – reflection of how I think Jordan would do in today's game yeah more skilled but way less physical and I think Jordan would do just fine today and it just stinks it it's over now we have just a couple 30 for 30s coming up <laughs> now we got Lance yeah, we I'm got, excited for Lance we got Lance we got Bruce Lee we have the Sosa versus McGuire and we got Jordan we got a movie on Jordan coming out on Wednesday all about game six thank goodness just the game six versus Utah yep hmm. something to keep us going yeah we need that I don't know what to do with myself now so That'll wrap up our talk on The Last Dance. We have Rusty LaRue coming up on an interview momentarily. He was a teammate of Jordan during his rookie year of 97-98, The Last Dance here. Um, Shares some personal stories. Shares some personal stories. Shares some stories. His thoughts on Jordan. Just an awesome interview, and we hope you enjoy. Here we go! And this interview with former Chicago Bull Rusty LaRue is brought to you by R.E. McNamara. Are you looking to remodel your home and make it championship caliber? Build a room-to-room dynasty? Call R.E. McNamara at 716-741-4819 to remodel your home. From basements to bedrooms, attics to kitchens, anything you need done, McNamara has you covered. Rebound tapped. Ron Harper gets it ahead. Rusty LaRue's in a foot race. Goes inside with a lay and hits. Rusty LaRue with the bucket. Goes down for Lou. To the corner. Rusty LaRue, right side long. Two. Rusty LaRue hits that one. Joining us now is five-year NBA veteran. His rookie year coming in the 1997-1998 season with the Chicago Bulls, currently being featured on the ESPN documentary Last Dance. Rusty LaRue. Rusty, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and talking with us. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. 
Hey, Rusty, Buckets here, and I know we're going to talk a lot about the Bulls and your days there, but I think we got to do your own career some justice and go back to the beginning with you, just because uh, doing the reading on you, you've had a very interesting sports career. 1991, North Carolina, High School Athlete of the Year, three-sport guy, baseball, basketball, and football. You go on and play at Wake Forest. You're their quarterback for four years. I see you started at least two of those years. One of the years uh-huh. you play three sports, baseball, football, and basketball. Um, I, could you just talk about what that was like and, and what playing three sports did for you? Yeah, I mean, obviously for it, it was it was a, a fun part of my life. I grew up, started playing football and basketball and baseball as a young young kid. I started football and football at eight, basketball and baseball at six, and just you know that was kind of everyday life for me. I played season to season and was lucky enough in high school to have you know be really successful at all three. And uh, Wake recruited me for both, um, and so I grew up, started going to Wake football, basketball camp when I was about eight years old, and so kind of had a dream of playing multiple sports in college and wake was the, the the best place to offer me that and so i did football and basketball for four years and then the one year junior year i played baseball um you know when i was in high school the baseball coach had always kind of you know recruited me believe it or not and said hey if you ever want to play we want you to play and it, you know it didn't i guess it you know it was a big deal because just not many people do those three major sports um you know a lot of people don't even do two but um it just seemed like kind of everyday life for me. You know, I was blessed that at, at the college I was at Wake was small enough and I had coaches that kind of knew the deal. And during football season, I was a football player and basketball kind of left me alone. And then when basketball season rolled around, um, you know, football kind of let me go and, you know, begged me not to lose too much weight <laughs> and keep on my football weight. And then as soon as basketball season ended, typically I was right back into spring football. So, that's incredible. And while you were playing basketball, I think maybe your most well-known teammate is definitely Jordan, but you played at Wake uh, with Tim Duncan. And did you know, or was he that dominant where you knew he was going to have that type of Hall of Fame basketball career as a pro? Probably during his freshman year, you know, Timmy, Timmy is such an unassuming guy, really quiet guy, um, very reserved. But about midway through his freshman year, you could just kind of see – you know, he, he, he just was so skilled. I mean, I've got to see him in practice. Everybody knows him as kind of this fundamental guy. He's so fundamentally sound. But I can just remember his freshman year in a pickup game, you know, seeing him take a rebound down and, like, dribble down the court, go behind his back and make a pass, something he probably would never have done in the game. Um, but saw him do it in, in a practice, in a pickup game, he's just like, all right, now he, he, he's, he's got something, you know, going on there that, that's going to make him a really good player. I don't know that anybody kind of felt like could see his future NBA career and, and getting in the right spot that he was in and being able to, you know, be a, such a consistent Hall of Fame you know, type of player for the years he played. But um, I, I could tell probably by his freshman year that I knew he was going to at least have an unbelievable career at Wake. We're loving this already. So this might have been your only trip to Buffalo. You can either confirm or deny this, but December 5th, 1994 – there's actually some articles floating around in Buffalo about it. Our friend and fan of the show, Chris Monaco, gave me this insight that Wake Forest came in, played at the auditor- the Memorial Auditorium against Canisius College, coached by then John Beeline. Um, 
Was this was this your only time in Buffalo? And do you have any memories from that game? Um, I it was my it, it is my only time in Buffalo was playing at Canisius uh, that I can remember. Um, you know, the biggest thing I remember, you know, I think we played in the I don't know what they call the name of it, but an older arena. Uh, I remember there were a few dead spots in the floor. I think that we had to <laughs> kind of figure out where they were, uh, but but. Uh, you know, obviously that was a well-coached team. We ended up winning the game, I think, but uh, um, they were well-coached, and it was a, it was a tough game. And as we move on with your basketball career, you end up not being drafted, spend a year overseas before signing a contract with the Bulls, and then during the 1997-1998 season, you get called up two weeks in. What was that feeling like joining a dynasty like that? And tell us what went through your mind as you stepped on that practice court for the first time, looking around at the NBA legends you'd be playing with. Yeah, it was really a long journey. Um, a lot of people don't realize, like I said, my first year out of school, you know, I had some football teams talking to me. I ended up deciding to do basketball. I went to summer league with the Houston Rockets. I got invited to camp with the Bulls the year before. Um, Clarence Gaines was the scout who was Big House Gaines' son. Um, and I went to camp, actually went to Chicago and was there the day before camp started, and I got a job offer overseas. And the, the Bulls were like, look, there's no chance of you making our team. You need to go, you know, make some money. So I went overseas for a month and played in a replacement contract in Paris came back and actually for two months sat around and couldn't find a, a, a playing job. All the NBA jobs were gone, obviously. None of the CBA teams had jobs. And in uh, January of that year, I actually was going to quit. Um, went down and interviewed for a job on a Friday in Charlotte. Um, I was going to take the job, and I actually got a call that night to join the Connecticut Pride of the CBA the rest of that first year. And so got on a plane the next morning and, and flew out and decided not to take that job and, and played in the CBA that rest of that year and then went to summer league with the Bulls the next year, went to camp with Chicago and literally got cut two hours before the plane left for the first game. And oh. so, um, you know, I was in Idaho stamp, playing for the Stampede and, and the day before the first CBA game, I got a call from Jerry Krause said, hey, you know, Steve Kerr got hurt last night. He's getting an MRI on his knee, and, you know, we may be calling you up. And uh, the next day I was waiting on the phone call about 2.30 in the afternoon, and um, I had to leave and go to the arena because I had my first game of the year, um, first game in Idaho Stampede history because it was an expansion team. And I told my wife, do not leave, leave the house, you know. And I actually, on my Twitter feed, I put out the note I actually left with her you know, what to do if I got called up. Um, and I said, look, if, if, if Jerry Krause doesn't call, don't come to the game. Just stay home. And so I was actually warming up in with layup lines, and my wife walked in the arena and gave me the thumbs up that I was getting called up. That's and, amazing. Um, yeah, so I, and, I, and I actually played in the game. I debated about not playing, but I played in the game. I hit the first – I hit a three, which was the first basket of the game in Idaho Stampede's history was the Rusty LaRue three. And then uh, – uh, got on a plane the next day, and, and, and I just remember, you know, walking back in the Berto Center, um, you know, for practice, and, and we actually had a game that day that I didn't get to play in any, but, uh, you know, anytime you get that opportunity, it's a little surreal. Um, when you're in the moment, you're just really trying so hard to try to do everything you can not to get cut <laughs> uh, and trying to find but without, without being starstruck and, and, and being there. It helped that I had been in camp. You know, I've been around those guys, and I tell everybody, you know, that team was really good to me. Those guys all welcomed me in. 
from Jordan on down just really made me feel apart. Um, you know, didn't treat you like a second-class citizen being a guy who's getting caught up from the CBA and just, you know, trying to do your job, you know, go about it and, and, and show that you you deserve to be there and, and compete every day to, to keep your spot. A uh, couple things going back before we move on to Jordan. I think it says a lot about your competitive drive that you took the risk of playing in that game when a knee injury makes it that you never make it to the NBA possibly. So that's crazy to me. And two, real quick, what made you choose basketball over football? Was that was basketball your clear number one sport? Probably growing up, it was my favorite. I wouldn't have necessarily said that. Um, I always used to choose, you know, summer AAU basketball kind of over. Once I, after 15, I went to the World Series when I was 15 with an all-star team, and after that I kind of always chose basketball in the summers. Um, but coming out my senior year, you know, Wake was – we, unfortunately we weren't we, – I was there for Caldwell's first three years, and we were kind of rebuilding, and we, we didn't win a whole lot. And my, my senior year, we, we weren't a no-huddle, run-and-shoot my last three games, and so I broke some NCAA and ACC records. And um, I had three or four NFL teams calling me. Um, I only averaged 10 points a game my senior year in basketball. Now, we did go to the Elite Eight, won the ACC championship, but I didn't have a lot of NBA teams beating down my door. Um, I, I luckily got invited to the Portsmouth Invitational up in Portsmouth, but draft day leading up to the NFL draft, I really thought I was going to get invited to camp with the Panthers. Um, I didn't get an agent for NFL because it really didn't, didn't think it was going to help me. Um, and so draft day kind of came and went, and the four or five teams that were talking to me, none of them invited, none of them panned out. Nobody drafted me. And then the Panthers actually called and said, hey, yeah, we decided to go a different direction. We didn't, didn't invite me to camp. So at that point, it, it kind of made sense just to, hey, you know, roll the dice and, and go with basketball. And for people who don't know, basketball, you can play all over the world and make good money. You know, mm -hmm. football, it's pretty much the NFL, the CFL, and back then, the Arena League was, was fairly popular. But there's just not a lot of places to play. Uh, minor League Baseball, if you don't get drafted high, you don't make much money. Mm -hmm. So I was married. My son was born uh, my senior year. My first son was born my senior year. And so it made sense. And, and it was just, you know, I kind of fell into it. Again, I played really well with the Rockets in Summer League. Um, got invited to camp with the Bulls. And I guess the, the pragmatist in me would tell you, you know, if you got a choice to get paid to shoot jump shots or get paid to get hit by 300-pound guys, <laughs> which one are you going to choose? Yep. You know, so it's kind of a no-brainer when you look at it that way. Yeah, very interesting stuff. And as we focus on the last dance now, um, now Bill and I are both uh, 28 years old, so that, that season we're fairly young, not really into sports yet, so this is all very interesting to us. Um, and, you know, we've always known about Michael Jordan and obviously what, how great he was, but we didn't really grow up in that era. It, watching this, he is definitely a different breed of a human being. Um, how was – how were practices? How was it being around him? Was he intimidating? You said he was welcoming, which is great, but he certainly gets on his teammates. Was he intimidating to be around um, both on and off the court? I didn't think he was. I mean, I feel like, too, uh, you know, he really – treated me well because I think he also knew I was, you know, I may not be as, I don't know if anybody's as much a competitor as she is, but, you know, kind of like it was interesting to hear Steve Kerr's comments, kind of like, you know, if you show you're a competitor, there's a certain amount of respect Mike gives you with that. You know, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to test you. 
Now, I don't know that I got the testing that most would get or Scott Burrell got, as you <laughs> saw, because I was, a ro- I was a rookie who, you know, was on the injured list most of the year. So I wasn't necessarily on a day-to-day affecting his, uh, his win and loss record. But um, he, he's a compulsive competitor. And, and, and if, if he thinks you're – if he doubts you anyway, he, he's, he's going he's gonna to find the crack in your armor and make sure there's not any there. And I also kind of came along, you know, most of the guys on that team uh, had been through the trials and the fire with him. You know, I mean, from, from Scotty to Dennis to, to, to Steve Kerr, I heard all the stories, obviously, from those guys. And I got to see the Scott Burrell stuff firsthand. But, you know, Scott really was one of the only new players who really had a big role on that team that hadn't that hadn't been around, you know. And so he, he was the guy that Mike was testing, you know, during that time. So um, I got to see it, and, and, and he certainly uh, didn't shy away from letting you know how he felt. <laughs> uh, but – you know, hey, that's 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 part of the deal. Didn't really bother me, and um, you know, I competed every day and, and 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 tried to do the best I could to show that, hey, I, you you give me an opportunity, and I'm going to compete. And I think I also like Scott's comment about off the court. I think what a lot of probably doesn't get talked about enough is, you know, if you were a guy that 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 went to battle with him, you know, he he had your back, and he he would, you know, off the court was a really good guy really was very genuine and would, would do a lot for his teammates, whether it was getting them tickets or, you know, he got tickets for four buddy of mine when we went his last game in New York, the one they showed where he wore the original Jordans. Mm-hmm. I was on the injured list and I was promised tickets to that game. And then like two weeks ahead of the game, they said they didn't have me have any tickets for me. Well, I had four college buddies, one of which is from Buffalo, by the way, nice. uh, uh, coming, coming to watch the game. And so, the ticket guy, the only guy who can get you tickets is Michael. And so I, you know, had to tuck my tail between my legs and go to Mike and say, hey, is there any way you can get me tickets? He's like, you know, don't worry, I got you taken care of. And sure enough, game day comes and he's got four tickets, you know, right in the first row of the, the balcony, you know, 50-yard line, great seat for my buddies. You know, he didn't have to do that for right. us to the real rookie. You know, he could be like, you know, you know, I got people coming, you know. And, but, you know, that's the kind of stuff he did off the court you know, for guys too, but he, he definitely, you know, he was, he was gonna, he was gonna test you and make sure you were in it, uh, for real on the court. Yeah, these are great. And going back to what you said about Scott Brell, it's funny how he definitely does seem to light him up, but Jordan makes a point of saying in the documentary, he's doing that because he knows that Scott had more to give. And he said that he, he never got mad, never fought back, but he just kept on trying to push his buttons and push his buttons. And then Scott Burrell has even been quoted saying, um, you know, I, he made me a better teammate, a better player, and a better person. I don't care what people thought. It's just crazy how that is perceived today as um, what could be bullying or being a bad teammate, what it was like back then. So I know you just touched on it a lot, but I had it written down. So you would describe him, or excuse me, how would you describe him as a teammate overall, Michael Jordan? I think Michael is, he's a tough teammate, but a good teammate. Um, Anybody who's a competitor, you know, um, now I would say they understand it, but they, they, they get what he's doing. They may not agree with it all the time. And maybe sometimes it comes out in ways that we don't all agree with, but 
so that was his leadership style. You know, everybody's a little bit different in how they kind of lead. Um, I do, you know, I agree with what he said that, you know, he, he, he was a hard worker. You know, I mean, any, all the great teams I've been on, whether it was, you know, Tim Duncan at Wake, uh, Randolph Childress at Wake. Randolph was a tough competitor. He was a guy that was, was a, a lot like Michael in that he, he, he would talk trash in a heartbeat. And, you know, you hear about great players. They all are great competitors. And, and you know, maybe he was a little more vocal than some and um, was a little more intense than some. But I, 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 to me, a, a great teammate is somebody who's going to make me better and, and help me win games. And I think that's what he does um, in, in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, you saw Michael get choked up. And I got into coaching when I finished playing. And coaching was always hard. And, I, you know, I, I laughed. At coaching was a – I lost my religion coaching more than anything I ever did, you know, because because I had to I had to treat people. Sometimes I had to bring out a certain side of guys and say things to guys and do things to guys as a coach to try to get them to be their best that I knew they weren't going to like me, you know. Um, and I had to do that some as a leader and a player. And, and when, when winning matters, sometimes you have to do that to, to try to bring the best out of guys and, and maybe, you know, do some things that aren't seen as, as, as fun sometimes in order to win games. And you mentioned you remain close to the game today. Um, so in your opinion – uh, this was probably the first thing that came to mind when I knew you were coming on the show. Would you consider Jordan to be the greatest player of all time? I would, um, you know, because I think he played in an era that was for me. You know, I mean, I grew up watching him play, and mm -hmm. I played with him, and I got to see it firsthand. I think without a doubt he's maybe the greatest competitor ever. Um, you know, he certainly has the resume to say he's the greatest basketball player ever. Uh, but, you know, eras are all different. And, you know, you know, you have the Kobe and the LeBron argument. Um, and people would have argued Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. And I'm sure the guys who watched Oscar Robertson play would argue him or Wilt Chamberlain, you know. So, in my opinion, yes. Does that mean, does that is that trying to diminish any other players and what they've done? No. Um, I just think that, I think he's the greatest, I think, because of the time he came along and, how much he changed the game um, and the way not only the game itself but also the marketing of the game, um, you can argue he's the greatest you know, NBA player that ever played. Perfect. So we can spin that into you saying that you hate LeBron. Just kidding. As, <laughs> when, we, when we talk about Jordan's competitive side, did you ever get into any card games with him on the plane? Uh, no, I was smart enough smart to never man. play cards. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I was smart enough to, to know that. Uh, I, I don't. That was there was way too much money on the table for, for Rusty Larue. I'm not a gambler. Uh, I uh, my job was to get to you know as a rookie I had certain jobs. You know I, I was the guy that I had to take the bags from the plane to the bus and the bus to the plane. And if they asked for if they wanted alcohol on the plane or something on the plane and they asked me to get it, I got it. <laughs> That's and awesome. so uh, and I did it, I did it welcomely. You know I, I was one of those guys that. You know, if, if that's the if that's the what I got to take to to be there, then I'll do it because my check's going to cash just like everybody else's. Yeah, so. That's right, that's right. And I mean, obviously that team's uh, led by Jordan, but you have Scottie Pippen, one of the most underrated players of his day and maybe all time, um, kind of a silent leader, providing the perfect yin and the yang, I would assume. And then you have one of the most eclectic personalities in the history of the league, and Dennis Rodman. 
What was it like playing with those two? You know, Scotty is, was, was, again, ahead of his time. I mean, you look at that team, um, how big we were, not just Scotty, but, I mean, you know, Tony Kukoc is 6'10", 6'11", could play like a guard. Ron Harper's 6'6". You know, Scotty was just such a good all-around player, and you hit on it. His personality, I think, was a great fit with Michael. Um, not that he accepted being second fiddle. I don't like to say it that way, mm-hmm. but you think about teams nowadays with some of the stars that butt heads and, you know, who's who's the leader, who's not. You know, guys get break up, you know, the KD and Russell Westbrook marriage and all those type of things. And, you know, just they were such a good fit together. And Dennis, you know, was, was who he was. Um, I think that was probably Phil's genius of being able to bring guys in like that. And that team, you know, me getting an opportunity to be on that team, we never practiced twice a day. That team was – most of those guys were at the end of their careers, um, established NBA guys, um, so they could handle all those dynamics and deal with the intricacies of each person's personality and how Phil handled them um, and still make it be effective. And – you know, it was just it was an interesting thing to be a part of, and um, you know, Dennis doesn't get the credit probably he deserves for being a really high basketball IQ guy um, because you don't you don't you are not a, you can't be as effective in that system as he was without having a really good feel for the game. And I saw you tweeted it, but would you say one of your biggest regrets in life is not going to Dennis Rodman's <laughs> birthday party? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I said that kind of jokingly because <laughs> I, I just never I think I've been to. I tell people in college I went to two parties my entire life, and those were for about 15 minutes after the uh, NBA ACC championship games. But, you know, he was really a quiet guy off the court. I mean, it's just, you know, he has this persona and all the, the, the flamboyancy off the court and the hair, but, you know, was really a quiet guy, came to work, did his job, was a really hard worker, spent a ton of time in the weight room working on his body, um, you saw some of the stuff about how he studied film and all that. Just, you know, that was sort of a, 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 a not a faux personality, but just something I think he did off the court probably to express himself. But, you know, really didn't say a whole lot to me as a player. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my best Dennis Rodman story is the Bulls do Secret Santa, believe it or not, back when we were there, and you drew names. And so you had a $500 limit, and I drew Dennis's name for Christmas uh, Secret Santa. So, and I had to buy Dennis Rodman a Christmas gift. So, what'd you get him? So, I got him. A, he had a has a daughter. Um, I got him a silver money clip with his daughter's name engraved on it. Oh, that's so, nice. Nice. You know, didn't want to didn't want to do anything that would lead down any more bad tendencies. Right. But I knew his right. daughter was you know close to his heart, so I, I got him got him that. So. And that's great. And wrapping up this year, um, I know we've gone uh, and we still have a lot to get to, if you don't mind, but. Um, are there any players that you've remained close to? And when it comes to Steve Kerr, did he have a mind at the time when you were playing with him that you could tell he'd be a great head coach one day? I don't really keep in touch with a lot of those guys. I mean, I, every now and then, back when I was coaching college, Scott Brill and I would see each other a lot, um, just, uh, you know, off and on. And he and I had a, a pretty good bond being dual sport athlete guys. And um, But just every now and then hit up those guys just to say hello but don't talk to him much and then with Steve you know anytime again Steve was a very cerebral guy and high IQ guy um, understood the game uh, you know for for guys like that um, 
a lot of times just how the right opportunity and how they relate to players uh, at the NBA level. And so, you know, certainly knew, kind of thought he would probably be more maybe a front office guy like a John Paxson, but um, certainly was not surprised to see the success he had. Um, you know, I know they're struggling a little bit now, but having good players always helps. When you get to coach the three guys he coached, it, it, it makes it a little easier sometimes to coach. But, but certainly not surprised he, he's been able to, to be successful at it. How entertaining has been uh, watching The Last Dance for you, and how closely do you think this documentary has depicted that season? It's been really fun for me, mainly because I've gotten to kind of go through it with my family. You know, I, I tweeted out my, my son that passed away in a car wreck at 19 was two years old at the time, and um, none of my other kids, you know, they've heard of the hoopla, obviously, and you know, they didn't, but they didn't grow up in the area, era, much like you guys. They've just heard the stories, right? And mm-hmm. um, I think it's kind of brought it home for them a little bit um, and, and giving them a new – getting them able to just kind of sit there and watch them with them and to be like, oh, was that really what it was like? And to hear the stories, it's just been kind of cool to, to relive those memories and bring back a lot of those memories. And um, so it's been fun just because I've been able to enjoy it with my family. Now, we're recording this on Wednesday, so I'm not sure how the documentary is going to end with Episodes 9 and 10 airing on Sunday. But that following year, um, Jerry Krause stays true to his word, and Phil does leave because they do not renew his contract. Jordan sticks to his word. He retires. He said he wouldn't play for anyone besides Phil Jackson. Pippen holds out until he's traded, and Rodman leaves for free agency along with Steve Kerr. And it's also a weird year because there's a lockout, so the league doesn't start until February um, what was the feeling in the locker room that next year? It had to be a bit deflating. You guys end the year 13-37, and 37, which is crazy to think about coming off back-to-back-to-back championships. Was that year over before it even started? Well, it was difficult. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, obviously, and kind of when you're in the, that year with the last dance, there's kind of a, like a part of you that thinks, okay, is it really the last dance? I mean, is there really going to happen or that you know are they going to there's got to be some sliver of hope that if we do win it they'll renegotiate you know they'll find a way to maybe try it one more time but I really think the lockout played a, a huge piece into that that you know kind of that last dance coming true because you couldn't negotiate with anybody you weren't allowed to talk to anybody you couldn't and so you know for me I was a free agent um and the, the lockout comes on and then the lockout ends, and, you know, camp starts the next day. Um, wow. And so it, it's just a kind of an odd situation for guys who are free agents. And, you know, new coach comes in, and, and, and a whole new system gets underway, and you kind of felt like it was going to be an uphill battle. And um, it was a long year. I mean, for a short year, it was a long year. It's never any fun right. losing, and uh, uh, that, was a, that was definitely a tough time, and um, especially for somebody who's still trying to prove themselves in the league. Um, it's definitely uh, definitely something that that is hard because you go from playing with some of the greatest players ever play and all the hoopla that surrounds it to then you know you're kind of fighting for your NBA life. Well, that's true, but those players leaving did open a door a bit for you as you averaged 17 minutes, 17 minutes a game that year. So although there was losing, um, which is obviously, as, especially to a competitor like you, not fun, was it, was it surreal seeing your dream come true, getting significant minutes on an NBA team? Yeah, I mean, that, that, you know, when you get a chance to do that, you're like, okay, great, I'm getting an opportunity, and you're just kind of grinding away and, you know, uh, 
getting an opportunity to be in a regular rotation was, was for me, was a dream come true. And, uh, you know, I, I, I remember at the end of the year we had a, uh, a, a thing where, Phil, we went to Jordan's restaurant, we had our end-of-the-year party, and we had a, had a uh, round table. All the players' wives stayed out, and just the players went in the back room, and Phil asked everybody to give a toast. And I just simply said, look, you know, I, I wanted to thank those guys for basically ruining the rest of my career because it's all downhill from here. Right. You know, and uh, so while I was getting a chance to play, you know, as a competitor, um, you know, it's tough losing. Um, and but, but it was a dream come true to get a chance to, to, you know, get to compete on a night in and night out basis with some of the best players in the world. And um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. They, they certainly seem to have villainized Jerry Krause in this documentary. And, again, we weren't old enough to follow along when it happened, but it just seems – and, again, the, the – I guess the landscape of sports has changed a bit, but it seems unfathomable to me that an owner would stick by his GM and let him blow this up coming off back-to-back-to-back championships. I mean, you'd at least think they'd ride it out until they lost one. Um, what what were the thoughts around not only you, but I guess Chicago at the time? Did, did people? I can't imagine people were um, understanding that, yeah, I guess they, they were at the end of their rope, but to just dismantle it like that, what were your thoughts on Jerry Krause? Well, I mean, Jerry was good to me. He gave me an opportunity. Right. Um, and I think uh, gave me a chance to win a championship. I think with Jerry, though, you know, it's, it's business. You know, and I think that people forget, he, you know, whether you want to love it, like it or not, he built that. You know, right. and, 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 yes, he put the guys around Michael. I mean, even the documentary where he gave Phil an opportunity, that was that was kind of a hard move to make when he made it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Doug Collins had taken him to the playoffs and all the stuff around that, but he was willing to make a tough move because he thought it's what was right. And I'd actually heard Steve Kerr talking about it, and he made a great point. You know, there was no salary cap back then. You know, a lot of those guys were free agents, and the amount of money they were going to have to spend and the lockout looming and the age of all the players and all those type of things um, all played into it. You know, certainly Krause was – there's part of you that just says, you know, you you don't you don't stop a good thing. Make someone don't be the guy who ends it, right? right. Make someone else end it. <laughs> I mean, make a player not resign and lose, and then re, and then rebuild. But I mean, I just guess there was so much water under the bridge. I kind of, you know, saw a lot some of that stuff they talked about with with on the bus. Um, Kraus kind of kept his distance most of the time because of and and wasn't out in front of the fans a whole lot because it was, as you can imagine, there was some animosity there, but. Um, you know, I think for me at least, part of me deep down thought, you know, surely maybe this will, won't be, um, and you you hold out hope it won't be. But in the end, I mean, uh, Reinsdorf was going to have to write a really, really big check mm-hmm. to keep bring those guys back. Um, and I do think there was some kind of like that third championship when Michael retired. I even heard Steve say it that, you know, not that they were on fumes, but it was just felt like it was time for it to end. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So do you think any of it is rooted in jealousy or Kraus wanting a little more credit and not wanting it all to be on Jordan? Or I mean, you've laid it out logically very um, astutely that it could have been time for it to come to an end and the lockout played an effect. But did was there any sense at the time Surely that – it's impossible to remove human emotion out of decisions. I don't care who you are. And uh, I, I don't doubt that there was probably some part of Jerry that um, wanted some more attention or wanted some more um, 
praise. Um, you know, and, and part of me thinks, why couldn't the Phil and Jordan and those guys give it to him? Right. You know? I mean, people don't say that. Why not say, yeah, Jerry helped build this? You know, and it's and, – and so it's – people want to all blame him, but, you know, that's a two-way street. And, and, you know, why couldn't both of those people just pat each other on the back, you know what I mean, and say, yeah, I mean, we built something great. And why couldn't Jerry say, yeah, the organization are great, but, yeah, certainly this doesn't happen without Michael Jordan or with Phil Jackson. Now, this organization gave them their props, but – so I think some of those dynamics, those those from both sides – People just said they dug their heels in and said, okay, this is what it's going to be, and um, we're going to go with it. And uh, since your NBA career, like you said, the thing that's helped you lose your religion, we're coaches too uh, at the high school level. Uh, you were on the Wake Forest staff for five years and now a head coach at West Forsyth High School where Chris Paul attended. Um, I guess – this is a good question for us. Do you do you notice a, a difference in mentality in today's players, and I guess in comparison to the players who you played with? I do, um, and I'm actually retired from coaching. My son Maverick graduated about two years ago. Graduated two years ago, so after he graduated, I stepped out of coaching. So I get to be a I get to be a, a passionate observer now, which is which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did notice a difference. And not necessarily that, that – I don't think necessarily guys are less competitive. Um, I just think it's a different deal now. I just think it's, it's – kids are brought up different. I can't imagine growing up in the, the society with every move being on, you know, Twitter or Instagram. And um, I, I do think there are kids who are still very competitive. I think kids there's – a, there's a different expectation, though, Um with what it takes, I think, to be successful. Um, I think people expect – I think kids expect success a lot quicker and parents expect it for their kids a lot quicker. Yeah, parents for sure. Um, than they used to. Um, you know, because why not? I mean, you can order Amazon and get something in, in a day and you can – if you don't like something, you go on and put a bad review on the place on Google. You know, it, it, my opinion matters, you know. Um, and – when you play on a team or you especially play a sport like basketball, um, you know, I could work every day as, as, as hard as I want to work and put, put up thousands of jump shots a day, and I'm not going to be Michael Jordan, you know. I mean, but I can be the best I can be, and I think to some degree our younger generation, you know, I think they expect success to come a little quicker than 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 maybe that other generation, and and don't you know you hear about the grind and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think the game back when I played, and even what Michael's mom said to him in the documentary, you know, there was some degree to like you know you can't just move to the next place or, or or move to the next coach, or it's not the coach's fault, you know. And sometimes you lose. You know, sometimes life sucks and you lose and you got to admit the guy in front of you was better you today and you strap it back up and you get in the gym and you get better. It's not that the coach didn't give you enough shots or this, that, or the other. And so I think it's coaching is getting harder and harder, that's for sure. It's interesting you go back to talking about Jordan's mom because I thought that was a really interesting piece. And you talk about the instant gratification type of thing with today's athletes, and I agree with you 100%. Jordan, if you just, you know, think and go back to his career – not making the varsity teams a sophomore and, you know, not getting a 
just kind of having to go through it and not having that instant success. I mean, he played years before they even got to the playoffs with Chicago. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you think about, and, you know, we try to blame the kids, but, you know, we're, we're, we're the parents who raised them, you know, and I think uh, um, for whatever reason, it's hard as a parent. I've been there. It's hard as a parent to, to, to see your kids struggle, um, to see them fail. But you also have to know that, you know, failures are part of life and struggles are part of life. And typically the, the struggles are what, in the end, when you look back, um, what, what makes you uh, – not that you want to go through them, but a lot of times those, those, those pain points and those pressure points are what, what make you stronger. So, um, you know, I always told my kids – I had two kids – uh, my, my older son who passed away played high school sports and my, my other two boys played and they both had opportunities to play in college and chose not. And I was fine with that because I, I told him, I said, look, I can tell you, it's not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. And it's going to, there's going to be days you hate it because it's going to be hard. You want to go and you want to do it in the time and effort. If you don't, it's okay. Go find something else. But you know, you want to be successful at something and you want to be good at something, it, it does, it's not instant. It doesn't happen overnight, whether it's business or whatever you want to do. It takes struggle and it takes time and it takes toughness, and you got to find a way to get it done. And um, if you do that, in the end, you're going to come out and be successful in the long run. Just awesome insight. Um, Rusty, I, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we appreciate your stories and your truthfulness. Um, can't thank you enough, and I hope you enjoy these last two episodes. Appreciate it, guys. Y'all have a good day. Oh, yeah! A big thanks again to Rusty LaRue, former Chicago Bull and teammate of Michael Jordan during the last dance. Very interesting career. Very interesting life stories he had. One of, in my opinion, the best interviews we've done, Bill. The former Demon Deacon. Yep. Um, I thought he was awesome. Super, super generous of him to come on. And as much as we wanted the interview to be about Jordan, I thought it was just Interesting and interesting interesting to anyone who will listen about his own life. Yeah, and again, thanks to Nick Phillips, Zach Boley, and Jim Doyle for joining us on our roundtable earlier. If you haven't watched Last Dance, this kind of spoiled a lot for you. Um, and if you don't like any of The Last Dance, then you really hated this episode. But we appreciate you listening to our insight. We're going to be back to our normal scheduled program next week. One other thing to hit on, Dan. If you got feedback for us, mm-hmm. we appreciate it. Um, we've heard some really good feedback from from our good friends, Jim Doyle, um, other people throughout the week, and we appreciate the feedback. We are, we are under construction. We are trying to get better every single week. And don't forget to tweet at us. Dan, what is the Twitter hashtag to tweet at us? You can tweet at Buckets and Dan and tell us your topics or tweet... Whatever you want, and then hashtag Q and A, the number four, B and D. Hashtag Q and A for B and D using the number four. We'd love to talk about anything that you want to talk about moving forward. Hopefully, we are in the process of landing our Buffalo Sports Blast from the past. Hopefully, we're able to get that done. We have some MLB writers for our next episode to talk about the proposed season and if that's going to happen. We have a good show lined up for next week. So thank you again for listening. We really appreciate it. Bill, signing off. Signing off. Love you, Mom. I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home.